Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Monday morning, November 6, 843-661-0937. Josh, we don't start this show in a rev and I already. You <laughs> oh. understand that? Yeah. I don't care what the clocks say. I don't care the time check. We don't start this show until the Royal Rev and I <laughs> Or already. That was a scramble there. So, and right? I'm trying to figure out what an IP address is. <laughs> he was. That, I mean, like three seconds before we went on the air, he said, what's an IP address? And um, and then I was like, hey, we're on. Go, go, go. Yeah. And I mean, so, it was a scramble. And then it's to, good morning, Josh. Good morning, Reb. Good morning. Our, good morning. our um, is it daylight uh, standard time? What was it called now? What, what did we? Eastern standard time. Eastern standard time. Um, first edition of Wake Up Carolina. It's actually, I don't care what the clock says, it's actually... 706 as we speak um fall back my butt is kind of where i land and spring <laughs> ahead my butt leave it to mankind to say god didn't get this right you know the, the 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 tilting of the world and the circling of the um of the sun ah let's monkey around with that a bit and uh let's... when are we going to do away with i think we need to go on daylight saving time and just keep it there why do we need to go daylight savings time and keep it there how about if we split the baby how about if we split it, and um, and instead of going an hour, we go thirty minutes and just leave it there forever. <laughs> okay, okay, I'm good with that. I mean, too. we can do what we want. Yeah, right. I mean, sure. we're we're America. Yeah, we're it's the American century. Forget all that history with that God of Abraham and Isaac and King David and all that. Do you not know, Lord in heaven, this is the American century that you're a part of, right? Right. I mean, th- <laughs> right. this is the American century. Uh, that we're participating in. Um, so, Josh, I knew he'd come in with an attitude, and he did. I mean, I, I knew, <laughs> you know, you give give a give a give someone a rope. They think they're a cowboy. Give him eight minutes behind a microphone. He thinks he's Howard Stern, Rush Whoa. Limbaugh, and nine minutes. Let's, yeah, let's okay, get it right. <laughs> nine minutes. Uh, I had to leave and go to a funeral, and I knew it was tight. And um, I'm listening to Josh, and. As I'm pulling, I mean, I'm going this back way because I know this back way like the back of my hand. And here comes the train. And the train Uh-oh. to, let me ask you this. And, and maybe there is. Should there be a period of time that a train cannot extend? In other words, they do the formula. They know how fast they're running uh, or how fast they're going down the tra- running. I mean, they know how fast they're traveling down the track. They know how long the train is. Someone could quickly do a mathematical formula. And say, hey, uh, what I'm asking is, should a train be allowed to stop a line of cars for 12 minutes, 13 minutes? Right. Should there? I mean, I would imagine there is some deal they've got with with DOT. Hey, man, you can't have that six mile long train, you know, running three miles an hour and keeping cars backed up for 45 minutes. I mean, that's just the um, the advancement of commerce. And capitalism is so um, thwarted mm-hmm. if we do that. Yeah. Um, it was 11 minutes. It, it never seems to be a consideration for the train schedules, yeah, especially I mean, around game day in Columbia. I so mean, so I'm sitting there furious. Not with, with I mean, I understand the guy, the train does the, what the train does, but I'm sitting there, you know, eight minutes and nine minutes. And, and I knew it was tight anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was real tight for me to get there. Um, I did get there uh, about a minute before. As the family was walking in, uh, I made my way in and um, – Got kind of nestled in the back row over there, uh, out of the way. But um, thanks to Josh for uh, for managing the last six or eight, nine, nine, nine minutes. There we go. <laughs> uh, about as long as I waited on that damn train. You know, it was about 11 minutes 
And um, I'm texting CSX right now. Oh, yeah. Ask them how long they can. <laughs> Who do I know? Yeah. Man? Well, I mean, I knew somebody. Real, real, and I texted oversight. Me, you know what he sent me back to text? Really? Question mark. Like, really? <laughs> Friday morning. And, and this is you, you know, texting me about how long we can back traffic up. <laughs> We're the train. We can back traffic up as long as you'd like. <laughs> right. Um. Why don't you find a little place between the wheels and just dart across there? Yeah, see or how that maybe, works out for you. Maybe do some Luke and Bo Duke and find one of those empty cars and just yeehaw yeah. it one time, you know, and jump through the uh, through the empty car. So when did you decide, Josh, when did you decide that that was going to be the subject that you I, I didn't on? hear it, so I don't know what he talked okay. about. Remember, he, he, he wanted me to go ahead and leave, which was fine. Mm -hmm. So as soon as I walked out of the door, I just got to work on my other business, and people were talking to me in the hallways, the salespeople, you know how that goes. And so, Josh, I, I've got no idea what you even talked about. So, how'd it go? Well, that's a shame because I was completely brown nosing. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> sorry I missed it. <laughs> Job was, half done. Yeah, I was. I uh, I was talking about basically a little bit about my testimony. You know, got on my soapbox talking about God and uh, how the situation i've been in you know it, it's been tough but uh, i think community broadcasters and this show has been a huge benefit for me he was talking oh, about nice. what he talked about the situation he found himself in like why to i'm the no shot, shot josh well yeah. why he's no sure. shot josh and, and, the, a, and the struggle he had internally about what to do and what not to do i would imagine josh is at the age he still seeks counsel from his parents i mean is that yeah. fair oh yeah i mean i think you're always at the age that you take some degree of input from your parents, but I got to believe that Josh listened to his mom and dad and they together walked through some of these decisions that he had to make. I applaud you for making that decision. Thank I mean, you. That, that, yeah. That's how you build credibility early. I mean, you believe in something and you're willing to put things at risk on behalf of what you believe in. Um, I didn't say it's smart all the time, but it's very honorable. It's very dignified that you have these sets of beliefs, that you have this, this, this this perception of the way things are and some corporate boss in America, and they do what they do. You know that. I don't think you're angry with uh, with corporate America for saying that. I mean, they're taking advice from probably some crisis management team somewhere. And, um, you know, six, one, half dozen, the other. Should we advise our clients, excuse me, should we advise our employees to get the vaccine or not? Should we mandate of our employees to get the vaccine or not? I doubt very seriously, Josh, the people in corporate understood that situation any better than you did. They were probably taking counsel from a lawyer right. or, or some advisory team, and um, and they landed in a different place than you were comfortable, and you made uh, a decision. One thing he did say, Rev, and this should make you and I feel, and, and maybe this is Josh in, in, in kind of a strange way, giving the show its credit. Um, Josh says when he gets here, as part of his job was phone screening, and these other jobs he's had – and he said, but I don't phone screen here. I mean, I answer the phone. I produce the show, but I don't phone screen. And um, and I just think that's 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 true to who we say we are. Um, I mean, Rev and I could say it, and someone would say, yeah, but those guys probably look after one another. Mm -hmm. They've been doing it a long time. Rev's got Ken's back, and Ken's got Rev's back. And, you know, they, they probably – I mean, I'm not saying they screen, but you know they're not going to let, you know, the reg resident antagonist on every single day. And Josh said – you know, when I was asked about, you know, screening the calls, they said, we don't screen calls. And Josh said, you don't? <laughs> I mean, so you got, when I answer the phone and somebody says I'm Larry from the PD or I'm, you know, a Rujan from Darlington or I'm, you know, um, anyway, I, I'm trying to think of names here, Breeze or whomever it may be. Um, you just let them on? Yep, we just let them on. 
Uh, let them on and have at it. Uh, Williams from Sumter. Uh, Orangeburg. Orangeburg. I'm yeah. sorry, Williams from Orangeburg. <laughs> um, you know, maybe that'll provoke a Williams from, from Sumter uh, to call in. But that was kind of a um, – that, that made me feel good to hear you say because it sounded to me like you were almost saying maybe this is the way talk radio should be. I mean, if you profess to be the last bastion of, of, of independent thinking – and the allowing of someone to express their opinion without fear of consequence or retribution, maybe this is kind of the way things um, should be done. There, I mean, there has to be some behavior code. I mean, you can't come on. I mean, Rev's given me a list of words. I mean, the famous George Carlin list. You know, the uh, the, the words not uh, to be said on the radio or in public over the, over the airwaves. And, I mean, I've got sense enough to know you can't drop some of those expletives, you know, over, over the airways. But outside of that, I don't know why anybody who does what I do would, would not welcome someone to express themselves in whatever conspiracy theorist way or uh, out of the mainstream way or radical and fringy, um, kind of way they would. I'm thinking about three or four or five calls that we've had over the years. And I would always, when the, when the phone hung up, I look at the river like, yeah, okay. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm out there, but he left me in the dust. I mean, you know, I'm out there a little bit, but wow, you know, but, um, but it adds something, uh, it adds something to the debate. And I think the one thing that we've always said is we're not going to censor the debate. We're going to let people on the air who are willing to take time out of their day and call in and say, Hey, I got something I want to say, but it's crazy. It's bat crap. Crazy. It's so crazy. But we're letting you say it anyway. And then when, and I think, Josh, you, you kind of enjoy some of that. Is that fair? Yeah. Well, first off, I enjoy it because I don't have to stay on the phone as long. <laughs> uh, but also, it, it kind of brings this uh, excitement to the show. You, you know there's been a few times where we put someone on, they start talking, and then I crane my head and I look at you like, ooh, is, uh, what do we do? Well, I mean, <laughs> the only thing we've always been careful about is personal. Right. I mean, somebody attacking somebody personally. And that's just not what we're doing here. I mean, those that's for courtrooms. I mean, right. if, you, if you've got a, if you've got an axe to grind or, or some, you know, if you're seeking vengeance, we're we're not going to do that here. Now, now, if a public official makes a mistake, you know, we're going to talk about the mistake, and you can kind of connect the dots and say, "Wow, it's pretty obvious who made that mistake, or or this mistake, or a uh, or another mistake." And um, I'll give an example. I mean, this would be the I guess the effectiveness of Wake Up Carolina. I'm sitting around the fire late Friday afternoon. At the beach. I mean, it was just the most pleasant day you could imagine. My son has these two dogs, and but those dogs lower my blood pressure. They really and truly do. So one dog on one side, one dog on the other side, and the sheriff calls. <laughs> <laughs> you got a minute, and I've told Rev this. Uh -oh. When TJ calls me and says, Ken, it's just everything's good. Yeah. But if TJ calls me and says, Ken, Ken Ard. Ard. Yeah, I mean, it, it's like, you got you to gotta admit it. I want to talk shop. So was it a Ken Ard call? It was a Ken Ard uh -oh. call. Uh -oh. Yeah, I got a dog to my left, dog to my right, a drink in my hand, and a fire blood. And Ken Ard, you got to admit it. Yeah. I want everybody to understand that those CAG readers I'm looking for and trying to get are not to stop anybody from rolling through a stop sign. That's just not what I'm about. You know me, Ken Ard. You know, you know me good <laughs> enough. And I said, TJ, I know that. I mean, I'm aware of that. And, and we'll clarify that as the week goes on. I may try to get TJ to come in and talk about it. But um, but he said, I don't want those cars. Look, let me tell you what I'm doing, Kennard. Let me tell you what I'm doing. I'm looking for, 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 for bad guys. I'm looking for people who have stolen, robbed, hurt people, 
uh, involved in serious crimes. And if we can detect a vehicle that is associated in some way with that crime, I need to know where they are. And, and randomly, we can read a tag, and that tag goes into a database, and he called the name of the system. But it's not if you roll through a stop sign or if you're driving 10 miles over the speed limit. Um, I said, TJ, here's all I ask. If somebody writes me a traffic violation, I want them to hand it through to me through my window, not mail it in the mail. Mm -hmm. Bingo. That's what he said. Bingo. We don't write. I mean, I, I've told my patrol, I don't want you writing traffic violations. I want us locking up bad guys, people breaking into homes, hurting people, uh, stealing from people, causing damage to personal properties. And sometimes we have a vehicle associated with that crime. We have a tag number associated with that crime. And if we can read that tag and randomly find out where these people are, what, what their daily routines are, it gives us a much better chance at, um, at, at getting those bad guys off the street. So he said, I want you to make clear, if you will. It's not your job, but he understands that. But if you'll help me clarify that, and, um, and I think there's a couple of House members in Columbia that had some concerns about was this to allow people, you know, to write a ticket rolling through a stop sign. He assures me, and I trust him. I take him at his word. This is all about reading the tags and, and, and monitoring the, 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 I guess, the actions of people who have been associated with serious and violent crimes. And when, and I, when he called on Friday, that's a, what I assumed he meant. Now, I'm glad it's been clarified. And I've seen, you know, I watch the, the former live PD show, which is on Patrol Live, and they, they seem to go with some other agencies that do have those tag readers, and the way they appear to use them is these tag readers are scanning tags, and it'll pick up on a tag that's been, like, if it's on a vehicle that's reported stolen or tied to a, a violent crime of some sort. Drug and, deals. And, and alert the officer, correct. hey, hey, this, this tag has this issue look into it. But it's, it's not you running five minutes behind right. on getting your kid to school and you kind of don't stop all the way. You don't do a complete stop at a stop sign. The tag reader gets your tag. They send you a $50 two-point violation or $100 two-point violation to the mail. That's not what the intent here is. The intent is to randomly check tags. And if that tag comes back at Therese's point as having been associated in any way, shape, or form with a, a serious crime, you, you, you kind of got a better chance of getting that person and that vehicle off the streets. Uh, I may try to get TJ to come on one day this week. Mike Nunn comes once a month. Maybe this is law enforcement week, and we can add, add some official clarity there. But, yeah, I get a call Friday afternoon about dusk. <laughs> Ken R. Ken R. Yeah, and I knew that was uh, that was him wanting to clarify something. Mm. The guy's working his butt off. I mean, he really and truly is. And, um, I mean, I don't do this much, but but I sing the praises of um, of what TJ Joy is doing uh, at the Florence County Sheriff's Department. Let's take a break. First break of the week of the um, the day, uh, well, the, the, the first show after the time um, changes. I got some advice for those of you who have a car that you don't know how to set the clock, mm -hmm. you know, reset the clock. Right. Just do what I do. Wait six months. There you go. It, it, it'll be right again. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Uh, we're having some technical difficulties. Do we think we're fixed or we don't know if we're fixed? Well, or... with the stream. It's okay. uh, stream-related. We should be on the air A-OK. -okay. Good deal. Uh, but uh, people that are trying to listen on the stream are having an interruption. I just reset all of our Internet equipment here in the building to see if that makes it more stable. Okay. We'll see. Do, do you want to? You care to give me a comment about football? We talked about Josh. Josh said, please talk about me a lot this morning at the beginning of the show. So we've done that. We've um. It's a little bit like I've told this story before. Rev loves this story. <laughs> 
So when my daughter was real small, Josh, she's such an, an altruistic soul. I mean, she's not like your typical, you know, I'm full of myself kid. I mean, the world does not revolve around my daughter. She thinks about everybody else before she ever thinks about herself. Uh, when she was real small, she's in the back seat of the car in one of these child seats. And my wife is taking her to 4K, 5, I don't know, 5, whatever, whatever she uh, age she was. She's in the back seat of the car, and my wife had a habit of praying with her. So my wife's driving the car, praying in the morning. My daughter's in the back seat, and my wife began to pray about um, the hungry, the homeless, the needy, the downtrodden. Um, she prayed for my daughter, her brothers, uh, me, the world around us, and then she started play, praying about the homeless and the sick and those in need. And about that time, my altruistic daughter said, pray for me more. <laughs> mm -hmm. you wonder when they learn selfish i can tell you when they're born with it they're born with it and it's hard to root it out if you know this um this this uh the world revolves around me syndrome that tends to afflict nearly everybody that has ever been um created but i want to give rev because josh was so adamant about making sure we had talked about what he said you know yeah. Friday. rev didn't hear it i did right you did great, and you Thank know I you. mean that sincerely. You're very believable and very authentic. And um, well, that takes practice. Well, I mean, no, it, it was. <laughs> and, and, and I want to say this: you have a maturity level that most people your age don't have. And I congratulate you and applaud you and stay that course. Never take yourself as so serious, but take what you do very seriously. I know that's kind of a oxymoronic something to say. Don't take yourself but so serious, but take what you do very serious. Um, Rev's Gamecocks. Okay. Yeah. Mine. Rev's okay. Gamecocks. <laughs> they were about to really be your Gamecocks. Right. Yeah, um, they if were. Stone Blanton doesn't read a, a wheel route, we may be singing another song. Um, I, I will say this, Rev. This will make you feel a little bit better. You trust me watching football. I mean, oh, yeah. when, when, when Rev said the internet doesn't work, I'm looking like, well, I'll be a Go fix it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> By the way, the question you asked me before the show about what is an IP address has to do with the internet. Okay. Whole other story, though. Okay, good deal. Good deal. Yeah, <laughs> when, I, when when Josh so rudely interrupted mine and Rev's conversation at 6.06 this yeah, morning, we are talking about IP addresses. So so I, I'll make you feel a little bit better. Okay. Because I went to the game. Well, I was the, one of the few. You're, nah, you're, that, that was a good crowd yeah, to begin crowd, with. Actually, was a good I was crowd impressed. to begin with. Uh, the students at 12 thought about parties in the late afternoon. Mm -hmm. And they chose parties in the late afternoon yep. over the um, over the the uh, the the routine of college football. Um, I, I will say this, and we'll get to Clemson in just a second because they did what I predicted they'd do. I mean, Jason Priester and I said on Friday that I thought Clemson would circle the wagons, rally the rally the troops, and put out a good performance, and they did. I mean, they outplayed Notre Dame and deserved to win. So, congratulations uh, to Clemson. Kind of gets that train back on track. A little bit. Um, the kid that played running back might be better than the kid that they want to be their best running back. Um, Mafa, Mufa, something like that. I mean, he, to me, looks like a uh, – Shipley can play, but this kid looks to me to be a little bit more dangerous. That's just my take. Now, I don't – you know, I'm not bleeding orange, and I'm not a Clemson fan, but um, but they, they played well. Played very inspired, very enthusiastic. Didn't make a lot of mistakes, something that is – um. They've had trouble with. I think they made a, what one turnover, but but they they just had, they made some mistakes over the year that have cost them dearly. So congratulations uh, to Clemson for upsetting upsetting the Catholic University of America. Um, 
Clemson's got it, it's an interesting year this year because historically the Gamecocks and Tigers have had warm-up games the week before they play one another. It's a rivalry game. You want to get caught looking ahead. This year's different. South Carolina plays Kentucky the week before Clemson. Clemson plays North Carolina the week before South Carolina. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, it's different than it has been because the Gamecocks would historically play, I don't want to say a cupcake, because who is South Carolina to call anybody a cupcake right now in its football program? And Clemson would play somebody similar to that. You kind of get ready, a warm-up game for the main event coming, um, you know, the Saturday after Thanksgiving now. But, I, but I'll say this about Jacksonville State. A um, couple of things that concerned me a little bit. I think Jacksonville State's better than Mississippi State and Vanderbilt. Okay. I mean, I, I, I know they're not an SEC school. Right. But, but I think Jacksonville State is a little bit better. I, I'm sure they're better than Vanderbilt. And they may be a little bit better than Mississippi State. And Rich Rodriguez has had some issues, and I'm talking about off the field more than on. But, I mean, he's been a head coach at West Virginia, Michigan, Arizona. He was an assistant at Clemson. It ain't his first rodeo. And he came in with a very solid game plan and, um, and took South Carolina to, to task. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And this Gamecock team just lacks identity. That they, they lack, I don't know. I mean, you, you play Jacksonville State, your quarterback throws for 400 yards, and you win a turnover battle 4-1, to one, and you got to hold on for dear life at the end. I mean, that's just something about that doesn't, doesn't add up. I, I'll tell you my biggest criticism, and I think you'll put some stock in this, because when the internet didn't work, I didn't get up. I mean, I didn't move. Well, Rev got up and snatched wires out of the wall and got a roll of duct tape, whatever. Right. Working. Good for him. I didn't move. But but South Carolina's given up about 426. Well, they're, they're giving up. They're, they're, they're almost dead last in America in defense. Saturday, they gave up 426 yards to a Jacksonville State. Not Ole Miss, not Clemson, not, you know, not, not, not uh, Alabama, not LSU. Jacksonville State. Now, I think Jacksonville State is better than Mississippi State and, and Vanderbilt. But here's something that should concern you. Nearly half of the yards the Gamecock defense gave up Saturday was on third down. Hmm. Hmm. That's the chess match inside the chess match. Mm. Okay. That's the um extend the drive, the offense says. Get off the field, the defense says. And you're getting beat that bad on third down that means the other staff, the other coach is doing a better job than your coach is. He's getting you in a certain defense. He sees something that he believes he can take advantage of, and, and that's a big concern to me. Uh, are, they, are they athletic enough on defense? Uh, athletic against who? Vanderbilt, Mississippi State? Yeah. Um, Clemson? I don't know. Um, Kentucky? I don't know. Alabama, LSU? No. Tennessee? No. Uh, Georgia? No. Uh, Missouri, no. So is there somewhere, you know, bottom half? Are they at the bottom of the bat? Are, are, are they a – we know they're not a, a bad, good team. Are they a good, bad team? I mean, that, that would be kind of a – I know that's a weird way to say it. I think Clemson proved that they're not a bad team. I mean, are they a, a good, good team? No. Are they a bad, good team? Let's find out. I mean, they've got Georgia Tech and North Carolina and South Carolina on the road. So, you know, they've got a, a three more games to find out whether they are a, a pretty good, good team or a bad, good team. But we know Clemson's not a good, bad team. We're still wondering whether South Carolina might be a good, bad team or bad. 
uh, bad team. But the third down conversion. Okay. I mean, there's something to read into that. I know it was frustrating there because you really expected to, to hey, we kind of expected to dominate. But, but re- you may have expected, I mean, it, it's Jacksonville State, but I'm telling you, Jacksonville State, coached by Rich Rodriguez, is a better football team than Vanderbilt or, and, and maybe even, even Mississippi State. Um, so, you know, just got to keep digging. I mean, you got Kentucky, simply got Vanderbilt this week. You got Kentucky next week. We'll find out at about one what time that game is. Um, that's a big deal if you're a Gamecock fan, that tailgating. You like it all afternoon to get lathered up. And then you've got Clemson playing North Carolina the week before the South Carolina game. There's just some, some kind of interesting football um, left to be played. But I can tell you this, if the quarterback from Jacksonville State puts some loft on that wheel route, mm, Spencer Rattler has to lead a less than two-minute length of the field drive to win that game. Mm-hmm. Take a break. Back in a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. I guess the the biggest political news of the week this week is, and we'll delve into this in the 7 and 8 and 9 o'clock hour, but we've got some elections tomorrow, and there are two in particular that I want you to pay close attention to. One is the Kentucky governor's race. You've got Bashir, who is very popular, very popular, trailing in the latest Emerson poll I saw by one over Daniel Cameron, African-American candidate, Republican candidate in Kentucky. Um, and you've really seen Bashir distance himself from from um, from Biden. I mean, you've really seen, I don't know if you saw this or not, but over the weekend, here's what happened over the weekend. You ready? Um, all, the, all the media got their marching orders from DNC, as they do periodically, to make sure on the Sunday morning shows and over the weekend, and even today, I mean, you hear a lot of it today, It'll be forcing Republicans to deny Trump's argument that the 2020 election, uh, something doesn't make sense there. I mean, they're using the word stolen because that's provocative and it kind of turns some people off. And the other is abortion. I mean, that's, uh, it's pretty obvious to me. I watched Stephanopoulos yesterday. I watched um, Welker yesterday. I watched a good bit of news yesterday afternoon, kind of back and forth in the race and football and news. I was reading a lot. And um, they, they know the elections are coming up. There's another Virginia Senate 31. Uh, it's all in Loudoun County. And Trump got killed there. And some polling says that this could flip. And if this flips, Biden may go missing. I mean, I'm serious. I mean, <laughs> you, you know, may we may have seen the last of, of Joe Biden. I don't think Virginia Senate 31 will flip. But it's all of Loudoun County. And it, well, I saw the swing state polls that came out. This obviously was promoted across Twitter amongst some of the people that I follow, but it showed the swing states where Trump is leading Biden by significant. But, but here's the number, Rev, and I, I trust me on this. Um, you're right. I mean, in Georgia, Trump's plus six. In Pennsylvania, Trump plus, plus four. In Michigan, plus five. In Wisconsin, minus two. In Nevada, plus 11. In Arizona, plus five. I mean, those are huge margins. But here's the bigger number. Over the weekend, the poll, nobody's talking it out. CBS News, Trump's at 51%. National poll? Donald Trump doesn't get to 51%. That's a national number? That's a national oh, number. Like popular vote? General type. election number. Oh, wow. 51-48 Trump. There is no way. I mean, if someone would have said, will there ever be a poll that shows, a national poll that shows Donald Trump north of 51 in a general election, my response would have been, I bet the House no. I mean, he's too polarizing. 
He's too divisive. He's too opinionated. He's too all of these things. No, Trump will never. 47, maybe 47 and a half. I mean, that's just high water mark. There's no way Trump gets to 51. And somebody at the White House and somebody in the, in the Biden administration, probably in the campaign side, decided to come up and coin the phrase Bidenomics. <laughs> and that person, I mean, I saw, I saw Axelrod yesterday say, basically, fire that guy. Fire that lady. Whoever coined the phrase Bidenomics and decided to frame this election about the economy <laughs> has to be politically just tone deaf. I mean, there's nothing about the economy, and it's going to get worse. I mean, it's going to get much worse. I mean, the first and second quarter next year is going to be horrible, horrible economic conditions and Bidenomics. And, and that's why the, the DNC sent the memo to the media sometime Friday and all weekend. It was the drumbeat of abortion and the 2020 presidential election. That's the only thing they've got to run on. I mean, in all honesty, that's it. You can't run on national security. You can't run on border security. You can't run on foreign policy. You can't run on the economy. I mean, they've screwed it all up. The only thing you can run on is convincing women that, you know, Republicans don't want to ever allow a woman to have an abortion. And these, 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 these um, conspiracy theorists who believe, you know, illegitimate people voted in in some of these states. I mean, it's just it's bizarre to me. And Stephanopoulos had a chance to talk to the speaker about Ukrainian funding and Israeli funding, and he did for a minute or two. Uh, and then he ta- started talking about answering the question. Um, Steve Scalise went on uh, Stephanopoulos' show, and he had a chance to talk about, uh, take us behind the scenes with you and Jim Jordan and, uh, and this new speaker. Take us behind the scenes. And uh, he didn't do that. He said, will you renounce Donald Trump's argument that the 2020 election was stolen? And Scalise kind of hemmed and hauled, and will you? Will you again? Will you again? Well, you know, and then it goes to abortion. And they had, uh, you know, Steve Kornacki at the board, at the big board, and John King at the big board. And they're not talking about polls. They're not talking about numbers. They're talking about abortion. I mean, the Ohio State Legislature, there's a pro-abortion group that has figured out a way to put on a referendum that the citizens of Ohio will vote for, make an abortion a constitutional, a state constitutional right. And that's all they want to talk about. That's why you know that they're in bad standing. And I don't know what you do here. Um, I mean, I, you know, Harris is running better than than uh, Biden. I mean, when you look at Harris's numbers in Georgia, she's only down to Trump three. And Biden's down six. In Pennsylvania, they're both down four. I don't know four is enough. I mean, Robert Cahaley says four is the number in Pennsylvania. I mean, if the Republican's up five, he can win. If he's up four, he can't. I mean, they'll make it up in Philadelphia, the suburbs with ballot harvesting, and, you know, mail-in ballots and drop boxes and all these other these other sorts of things. Uh, I saw an article over the weekend that Philadelphia is the epicenter of ballot harvesting. Not not in America, in the world. I mean, it is the Philadelphia <laughs> suburbs are the epicenter of, of ballot harvesting. So if he's up four in Pennsylvania, that's still in play. I mean, Cahaley says that. I mean, four is the number. I mean, Robert says if the Republican's up five, he can win. If he's up less than four... They'll figure out a way in Philadelphia to pull it through for the uh, for the Democrat. You look at Michigan. Um, here's a big deal. You ready? Biden's down five to Trump in Michigan. Harris is up two over Trump in Michigan. Um, Wisconsin. Well, why, why do you suppose? I, I don't have any idea. I mean, I, I can't make. You're talking about why Harris is polling better well, than than well, Biden? Well, no, but but you're starting to hear this chatter, like David Axelrod, Bill Kristol, who's apparently a Democrat 
political strategists these days are saying Biden needs to step down. But nobody's saying Biden needs to step down and make way for his vice president well, to take she, the reins. Because she's losing everywhere. She's losing in, in Wisconsin. But if she's doing better than he is in these polls. Uh, a little bit. Not much. A little bit. I mean, let's do this. She's eight down in Nevada. He's 11 down. She's five down in Arizona. He's five down. Uh, Michigan's the outlier. Trump's up five in Michigan to Biden. Trump's down two to Harris. Now, it flip-flops in uh, Wisconsin. Trump is down two to Biden. In Wisconsin, he's up two to Harris in, in Wisconsin. I don't know what to make of that. I mean, I don't understand, you know, um, first of all, I don't understand why you'd ask that question unless you've been told uh, to ask that question. I mean, somebody at DNC called the New York Times and say, hey, when you guys run this uh, this uh, battleground state poll, include a question about Harris. That, that's where I'm headed, guys. You can't tell the difference in the media and the DNC. I mean, you really can't. You, you, there is no line of distinguishment one from the other. I mean, Stephanopoulos sounded like a political consultant. I mean, he really did. I mean, he, he tried his damnedest to get one of the Republicans to say, we don't think women should have abortions, and I think the election was stolen. I mean, he got chances to have, you know, stories that people may be interested in about behind the scenes of the speaker's race saying he didn't do that with Scott Solis. I think he asked him five times. And then he kind of took pride in well, I asked the, 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 you know, I asked one of the high-ranking Republican House members five times, you know, whether he would, you know, say that the election was not stolen, and you heard him. He would not answer um, said question. It's just kind of, it's interesting where we've gotten ourselves. But, but the polling convinces me that Americans are waking up. Remember six or, I don't know, six or eight weeks ago when I kind of said something in my instinct led me to believe that people were just kind of, um, oh, okay, okay. Um, it, it's almost like when, when you're, when, when, when the, the guy, you know, drinks too much at every party says, I'm going to the party tonight, but I'm not going to drink. And you kind of like, okay, okay. Okay. And then at 1130, he's in rare fashion. Like he mm-hmm. always is. That, that's kind of where it, it's almost like, well, I mean, we're not in cahoots with the Democrats. We're the media. We're, we're the neutral arbiter of all things fair. Mm, okay. <laughs> okay. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Take a break. Back in a few. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. A lot of us are concerned about border security. Uh, I read some of the internals on the polling, the New York Times Siena poll about Trump, Biden, Trump, Harris, uh, national security, border security. Um, Trump is far, far, far ahead of Biden or Harris when it comes to who the American public trusts to secure our southern border. Um, and we're talking about, especially today, Rev, we're talking about how many uh, potential Islamic jihadists are making their way into America, wishing to cause, you know, destruction and death to the Western world and America being kind of the leader of the Western world. The number of Chinese migrants entering the country at the southern border has reached a record high, and that's alarming to me. Fox News Radio's Eben Brown is in Miami. Eben, good morning. How are you, sir? Good morning. So what are we to make of the number of Chinese migrants entering the U.S. at our southern border? Well, well, this number has gone, uh, has increased um, truly uh, in, in amazing rates here. Uh, in, in the 2021 fiscal year, there were about 320 Chinese nationals who had crossed the border. Uh, and that was in the midst of still with the strict, uh, you know, Title 42 stuff and the, the pandemic travel bans and all that. 
In fiscal year 2023, that number went up to 24,000. That's a 7,000% increase. And make of that what you will, but uh, this is, again, this is part and parcel of the problem of having a, a border that is uh, very porous in which the policy is to not try to prevent people from coming in. But if you catch them coming in, you catch them. If you don't, they get away. And if you do catch them, you release them anyway into the interior of the U.S. with a court date with, to return to that's years and years off. And, of course, you, the chances of ever seeing these people again are very, very small. So here, here we are with yet another factor of a very large problem that is a national security problem. We don't know who's coming in and coming out. More likely, they're not so much leaving as they are coming, obviously. Uh, and we don't know what they're doing once they're here because there really isn't a good way to monitor them. This, this whole self-reporting and self uh, uh, you know, turning in for, for court dates is, is not a reliable system. Evan, are we concerned at all about spies? I mean, I, I fan the flames of conspiracy on conservative talk radio, and we go down the roads that traditional journalism does not go. But when I hear Chinese migrants making their way into America, my mind just goes for some crazy reason to potential spying on our nation. Spying is one concern, uh, but other nefarious actions are, are, you know, as also a concern. But spying specifically, I think, is something that you you are not wrong to bring up. A few years ago, while President Trump was still president, uh, authorities arrested a woman of Chinese origin uh, who was trying to get access to Mar-a-Lago, and uh, she got caught. And you know, she she tried going in through the you know the front gate essentially. Uh, during some parties when uh, the president happened to not be there, but she was caught. Everyone kind of thought this didn't look right. And when they went to her hotel room, they found uh, a lot of surveillance equipment that the, you know, something far and beyond what a, a tourist would bring with them for taking pictures and videos. Uh, and so this was, this turned out to be some kind of very strange scenario. She was prosecuted. Uh, she was never actually charged with espionage. Uh, but uh, but but everyone else surrounding this was rather tight-lipped about how how this could have been, how this how this could have happened, and so I, I I don't think you're all that far off to suggest there could be spies, but there also could be people who are doing other things other than espionage that are still not good. I mean, in you know, they could they be planning some kind of terrorist attack in some way or another? Uh, that's not spying per se, but it's still, you know, the the bad work of, of nefarious actors uh, who are here to do us harm. Well explained. Eben, thank you for your time, sir. You got it. Fox News Radio's Eben Brown, who's done such a great job of kind of um, keeping us informed from a Jewish perspective on the situation in Israel. We, we've not forgotten about that. We just got to, I mean, there, there are other things in the world that we need to pay close attention to. You know my theory. I mean, you folks, some have bought it. Some have said that's nonsense. Some have uh, maybe a little bit of this and a little bit of that. My theory is this. And when it comes to the situation we find ourselves in, and, and it really goes back to 2008 and 12, when we elected the first new left president, we're getting accused of, you know, redefining the right, you know, the, the new right, the alt-right, the, the America firsters, you know, they're not the traditional neoconservatives. Well, they aren't. Um, that there's no denying that they, they absolutely are not that. 
So, so I'm I'm texting over the weekend with some Democrats who I consider good friends of mine. We see the world fundamentally different, um, but I think they love America. I think they're patriotic. I think they're sincere. I just think they're wrong. I think they believe I love America, and I'm patriotic, and I'm sincere. They just think I'm wrong in, in the way I some of see, see some of these macro political issues. But but I, I still go back to the belief, and I've read a good bit on this, guys. And I'm not saying you got to trust me because you don't have to trust me. You can trust me or not. But I've read a lot uh, about some of the work done by journalists on, on kind of a post-mortem, this post-Obama Democrat party. And I do believe that's where we are. We're in a post-Obama, new left, radical Democrat party. What is it centered upon? What are some of the, 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 the critical theories? And, and I, I just I think that Obama is an anti-Semite. I mean, I, I can't say for sure because I've never sat down with a man, and he certainly uh, wouldn't sit down with me, and he wouldn't say, yeah, you're right, Ken. I mean, you got me. That guy who's to, you know, I'm an anti-Semite. You're right. I mean, you know, no. I mean, you got to read between the lines, and, and some of these – some of these authors and journalists who take themselves and their profession more seriously than most do today, but I mean, they've done kind of a deep dive into his life, existence, his political proclivities, what he thinks, what he believes, why he's relevant, why he's important, why he's transformational, why the nation looks fundamentally different today um, than, than Jonah Goldberg. Um, if I'm not mistaken, today, nah, Saturday, might have been Friday or Saturday, was the 15th anniversary of the speech in Chicago. Remember when he walks out and he got these big columns on either side, and it reminded me of the Roman Empire, to be honest with you. And that's the speech that he said, we are the ones we've been waiting on. Mm -hmm. This is the moment. The, the oceans um, begin to, uh, this 2023 got elected in 08. So, yeah, roughly 15 years ago. Um, and he basically is kind of, um, I'm making a point that this is the day America came together. Well, I mean, have we ever been more divided? Have we ever been more political argumentative? It's hard to believe that, that the, the 15 years of Obama's influence on politics has led us to a safer and more peaceful and more tranquil existence. Just not the case. I mean, I'll give the guy credit. I mean, he transformed America. I mean, there is no doubt about it. He fanned the flames of racism. He fanned the flames of, of class warfare. He fanned the flames of ideological warfare. Identity politics. I mean, you better believe it. I mean, he was a transformational American president. Um, and he, and if you listen to what he says, I mean, he kind of sort of talks in riddles, but he has an unbelievable ability to speak and, and just cadence and his, his momentary pauses. Um, Josh, can we get in cue real quick? I mean, this is... Um, this is him talking about the situation in Israel today. And, I mean, he says a lot, but he really doesn't say anything. But, but he, he tells me, he confirms to me that, that he believes in something other than the Judeo-Christian ethic. I mean, I, I know I'm getting out there, and this is philosophy and psychobabble and uh, mind reading and ESP and all that. And, and I'm certainly not saying I'm sure that I'm right here. But I want you to hear Obama uh, when asked over the weekend on a podcast, and he's got two of his alumni there, and he actually talked a little bit about the Obama alumni in the extended version. I'm not going to play all of that, but I watched about 20 minutes of this, and I, and I thought this was interesting. Get with you, cue, Josh. Okay, you ready? Well, I mean, here we go. To, it's going to take me to Twitter, so I'm sorry. Right. 
I thought it was going to play right there. You ready? All right. Stick with me, Josh. Constructively. All right, let's go back if, here. If okay. there's any chance of us being able to act constructively to do something, it will require an admission of complexity and maintaining what on the surface may seem contradictory ideas. That, that what Hamas did was horrific and there's no justification for it. And what is also true is that the, the occupation and what's happening to Palestinians is, is unbearable. And what is also true is that there is a history of the Jewish people that may be dismissed unless your grandparents or your great-grandparents or your uncle or your aunt tell you stories about the madness of anti-Semitism. And what is true is that there are people right now who are dying who have nothing to do with what Hamas did. And what is true, right? I, I mean, we can go on for a while. And the problem with the social media and trying to TikTok activism and trying to debate this on that is you can't speak the truth. You can pretend to speak the truth. You can speak one side of the truth. And in some cases, you can try to maintain your moral innocence, but that won't solve the problem. And so if you want to solve the problem, then you have to take in the whole truth. And you then have to admit nobody's hands are clean, that all of us are complicit to some degree, I look at this and I think back, what could I have done during my presidency to move this forward as hard as I tried? I've got the scars to prove it. But there's a part of me that's still saying, well, was there something else I could have done? That's the conversation we should be having. Not just looking backwards, but looking forward. And, and that can't happen if we are confining ourselves to our outrage. I would rather see you out there talking to people, including people who you disagree with. If you genuinely want to change this, then you've got to figure out how to speak to somebody on the other side and listen to them and understand what they are talking about and not, and not dismiss it. Because you can't save that child without their help. Not in this situation. If I mean, what, what is he saying? I mean, that's three minutes and 15 <laughs> seconds of academic exercising. Right. I mean, a lot that, of words that, there. I, I guess it's intellectualism. I mean, there's a lot of words there, but they're contradictory words. I mean, it's just I mean, the, the moral equivalency. I mean, you hear some of that in there. You hear, um, I wish I could have done more. Uh, what did he do? I mean, what, what did Obama do? I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think back. I mean, I went back and looked, you know, very, very little. I mean, he did very little in regards to that part 
of uh, of the world. He seemed to give uh, Iran some assistance, though. Well, I mean, he made the moral equivalency. He basically said that uh, the, the the innocent people being killed in Gaza are the equivalent of Jewish children being beheaded, and that's not the case. The Jews are not targeting innocent people. That That's the biggest difference in this. The Jews are not intentionally killing innocent Palestinians. Unless we're being misled. And I mean, rest assured, the modern woke Western journalism of the 11 or 12 elite universities in America that have graduated the majority of these. I mean, that's a, when you listen to that guy, it reminds me how afraid I should have been of him, but I was not. I didn't, I was nowhere near as concerned about that guy as I should have been. A lot of us were asleep at the switch and not understanding how dangerous a man that really and truly is. And I think that three minutes and 15 seconds reminds me he is just as dangerous today as he's ever been. He's the most prominent Western intellectual in the world today. And he's, he's a puppet master. I'm, con- I'm convinced of that uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt. I don't know. I don't have any idea. I mean, I, I'm not in th- those email threads or I'm not in some of those conversations to be had, but it's so obvious to me that he is intimately involved in whatever policies we have regarding whatever issue this new left of the Democrat Party is kind of advancing. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of encouraging news on the other side. Back in a few. So, Josh, was that not there are good people on both sides in, 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 in Ivy League intellectualism? Yeah. I mean, in, in essence, for three, I mean, that's what he's saying there. And and Trump is just taken to task and ridiculed, and, and it's supposed to be a disqualifier if he says something uh, that inappropriate. There are good people on both sides. The difference, and, and, and Obama won't distinguish this, and he knows, I mean, he's a smart man. He's scary smart. But but the, the thing he won't distinguish is the Jews don't target innocent Palestinians that we know of, do they? I mean, they, they target terrorists. I mean, I've never seen a report validated that says the Jews, you know, go into Gaza every now and then and shoot up a bunch of innocent Palestinians. They tried to say the hospital thing, but then that turned out not to be well, true. I mean, there, there are stories out today, even on CNN, about this is kind of a um, this is a routine strategy of Hamas. I mean, they find these refugee camps and they find these these hospitals. Now they're finding tunnels, you know, that that lead to some of these places. And I'm not defending unequivocally Israel. I'm not. I mean, Josh and I've had kind of kind of an extensive conversation about you know, n- no nation is perfect. I mean, we're certainly not. I mean, we're high and mighty, but we're not perfect. The the Jews aren't perfect. But but to equate what Hamas and Hezbollah do. With, with what the Jews do, basically there are good people on both sides. Okay, but but give me an example of Jews going into Gaza and killing innocent Palestinians. I mean, I know they've gone into Gaza and killed terrorists and sales of Hamas. I know they've gone to the West Bank and killed sales of, of, of Hezbollah. Have they killed an innocent Palestinian in the process? I would imagine they have. But when have Jews targeted innocent Palestinians? And Obama knows that. Damn it, he knows that but he's anti-Semitic. Let's go to the phone. Verd Odom, Marlboro County. Hi, Verd. Good morning, Ken. I, I caught the tail end of your conversation as you were closing out a while ago, and I figured exactly 
who we were talking to, and I didn't hear one word of it. Yeah, uh, Obama come out of the shadows, and where everybody's known he's been uh, this week, uh, past week, you know, when he made that statement and stuff. And uh, if you look at Obama, I mean, I've never seen anybody age as much as he has. But I guess when he's trying to trying to correct everything wrong that the Biden administration has done, and that's what he's been doing, I guess, the last four years now, almost three years. Uh, it's, it's really aging pretty good. I mean, uh, uh, Biden's been bad for everybody, even Obama. But uh, but yeah, you're right, Ken. He's uh, all of our problems go back to the very first week Obama was elected. Uh, back whenever I forgot about it, it was such a bad time. Uh, when he when he crossed the line and took up for the uh, professor over those policemen uh, over uh, uh, something he was doing wrong with the beer or whatever, you know. But anyway, that's uh. Don't spend a lot of time thinking about Obama anymore. Uh, uh, very little time thinking about Biden. Everybody knows what he's done to this country. Uh, Ken in Marble County, uh, tomorrow we have three great elections coming up. Uh, Clive McCall and Wallace will be electing the mayor and a council. And uh, just want everybody to come out and vote. We have some great candidates. Uh, Lee Fowler and Bill Jennings is running for District 4 in Marble County and City of Bentonville. And then Robert Outlaw is running for Mayor McCall with a great vision for what he wants to do to change McCall and bring the downtown area back to where it once was. So uh, anyway, looking forward to working hard. We've been working hard upon it for weeks and weeks and stuff. Uh, one last thing, Ken, uh, I figured this thing out about how bad this uh, time change is for everybody. Yesterday morning, 3.30, my dog's pacing the hall and bumping on my door trying to get me up. And he never gets up until my alarm clock goes off, But uh, and that's at 4.30. But at 3.30 yesterday morning, he knew I was fixing to be an hour late for work because he was pacing the hall and beating my door <laughs> trying to get me to go up. So, uh, yeah, I hate this time change. I wish they would go back to just one time and leave it like that because we all get used to one time. And, and I guess a dog can tell you better than anybody that uh, this time sucks. Yeah, he's telling you to get out of bed. You're going to be late, bird. <laughs> Yeah. Have a great great week. Thank you, my man. Appreciate it. Uh, I woke up at 3.30 and couldn't go back to sleep. I mean, there's no way it's 3.30. It's 4.30. My body tells me as clearly and loudly as it possibly can that it's um, it's 3.30. I want to go back to Josh because Josh will have an interesting take on this. You heard the three minutes and 15 seconds. You heard my points last week Mm -hmm. that I believe a lot of the – we were talking about when did the left become so pro-Palestine. That's not, no, let's back up. Let's be honest. Pro Hamas. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, the, 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 a lot of the academic left in America today is not just pro Palestine. I think it's honorable to try and stop innocent Palestinians from getting killed. I mean, that, those people are people are people. They, they're dealt a very complicated hand. When all this began, Rev and I had a conversation on and off the air about, well, they elected. You know, Gaza, or excuse me, they elected Hamas to be uh, the mm-hmm. government of Gaza. But I said, yeah, but Rev, you don't know if they show up at the door with a machete in one hand and a ballot in the other. And you got a room full of kids, and you're trying to make your way the best you know how. And, and here's a guy with a ballot and a machete. You, you're voting for Hamas or not? Yeah, I mean, what, what, you know, how, how big does my mark need to be in that box that says Hamas? I mean, we're all self-preservationists. I've always tried to respect that in, in, in a very serious way. I mean, I understand that, that I am afforded luxuries and opportunities that most people in the world will never, ever, ever be afforded. We take those for granted, and I'm guilty of that, taking it for granted far more than I should. But but I, I think we all, all three of us in here, we're concerned about innocent Palestinians being killed. But in a war, that's just going to happen. I'm sorry. Uh, that's just, there's no way that, 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 that Israel can root 
Hamas out of Gaza without killing innocent Palestinians. I mean, Josh knows that's impossible. I know that's impossible. Rev knows that's impossible. But I don't ever remember reading a report that said the Jews went into Gaza and killed a bunch of innocent Palestinians on purpose. The Jews went into the West Bank and killed a bunch of innocent uh, Palestinians on purpose. Like I the just, only thing I heard was, the, again, that hospital. They talked about sure. the Israelis blew up this hospital, but that turned out to be false. And even if they did, it's not intentionally. The, the Jews right. aren't targeting a hospital. I, I just don't buy that. I mean, th- there's no evidence that shows that's the case. So, so when Obama says there's good people on both sides, and that's what he did for three minutes and 15 seconds, there are good people on both sides. Now, he did it in a in an academic Ivy League and kind of intelligentsia um, sort of way. It's a word salad is what it is. He doesn't say much of anything, but he did basically say, you know, we're all complicit in this. And I, and I, don't, I don't disagree with him when he says it's extremely complicated. It is extremely complicated. We've tried to address it. Uh, the best we know how for the last two weeks, and it's extremely complicated. It's unbelievably complicated for me because I'm trying to adhere to a biblical worldview and keep my, you know, kind of non-interventionist bona fides in place. So, I mean, I'm extremely, I'm more conflicted now than I've ever been about whether we should do X, Y, or Z in support of Israel. Is somebody on the phone? Mm-hmm. Let's go there. Earl in Bennettsville. Good morning, Earl. Morning, morning. I've read something on one of the social media sites that said a man who will cut two inches off the top of a blanket and add it to the bottom of the blanket and to himself the blanket is longer is sadly mistaken. I think that's the way it is with daylight savings time. You're not going to have but so many hours of daylight regardless of what hour of the day you call it makes no difference you know the farmers years ago and a lot of them now they work from can see to can't see and i think everybody knows what that is but anyway bert odom got his shot in this morning for his candidates uh my name's earl h buller jr and i'm running for district four here in Venezuela, as is cricket ridges and Carolyn Prince is running for mayor. So there are the rest of the candidates on the, on the ballot this time. I appreciate your time. I hope you guys have a good day. Thank you, sir. Good luck to you. Uh, 843-661-0937. And I'll go back to the poll. Um, the number that sticks out to me, and, and I guess Republicans everywhere will benefit from this, and it's not what the Republicans have done. It's what the Democrats have done. And um, and whoever coined the phrase Bidenomics. I mean, I... I, I I'm somewhat astute at what it takes to win elections. And when someone coined the phrase Bidenomics, I kind of like, am I missing something here? (laughs) (laughs) Have those people gone to the grocery store? Have they bought gas? Have they, have they lived in the real world? Are they really trying to take credit for this mess? Have they tried to finance a car or a truck or a home here in in the last little bit? But that's kind of where we are. But here, here's my curiosity. Why Obama now, why is he all of a sudden, because he's been fairly quiet over the last three years, right? I mean, you'd, you'd hear a little now and then he'd say something, he'd give a speech, he'd he'd make a social media post, but he's really getting out there and addressing some issues very recently. Why now? I, well, I mean, I, I think he's beginning to see his work in progress. I mean, he's beginning to see his work in, in the clear of day. I mean, you, you've got all these kids, pro-Hamas, anti-Israel. 
And I think he's largely responsible for that. I mean, I think, I don't want to say he's taking a victory lap because I don't have any idea what motivates Barack Obama. He's a scary man as far as I'm concerned. He's the most prominent Western intellect in the world today. Still, the most prominent Western intellect in the world today. And I'm thinking about 15 years ago when we didn't know who he was. We've always had issues. We'll always have issues of race and and, and income disparity and uh, we'll always have the, 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 you know, the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. And the, I mean, that we're talking now about the Jews and the Romans and the Christians. And the, I mean, there's always going to be these subsets. But, but Obama was the most effective leader in my lifetime at creating the tension that he thought was necessary to evoke change. I mean, I, I just believe that. I think he, I think he thrived on these, these pressure points in American culture and politics and society and and he took advantage of those and 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 when you look at how many young people today are pro Hamas I didn't say pro Palestine pro Hamas Bill Ackman had to write a letter he's got two degrees from Harvard there's no telling how much money Bill Ackman has given to Harvard he said what in the world is happening to my alma mater I mean we've got about six or eight groups gathering on the campus of Harvard anti-semitic pro Hamas groups and I think that's the work of Obama. And, and I, you know, w- once again, why now? Is he taking a victory lap? I don't, I don't have any idea. But I think he's reminding us that I'm still here and I'm still intimately involved. And, and I've said it since the day Biden got elected. Joe Biden is a prop. He's a pawn. He's a mark. Barack Obama is running this government. And it's running just like he wants it to run. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. So over the weekend, I mean, I, I'm stewing around. I'm thinking about it. There's a book out by David Garrow called A Rising Star. I mean, it's very interesting. It's very provocative. Um, I mean, in all fairness, a lot of the sourcing of the book is uh, a former girlfriend of Barack Obama who was very politically inclined. I mean, they, they were there when, I mean, it's just, it's so unusual that, uh, the most prominent nation on the planet would elect someone that nobody knew anything about. I mean, kind of let your, I'm going to sit with me or, or listen with me for a second. So, so Obama gives a speech at the Democrat national committee or convention. I'm sorry, the convention. Remember the, um, Josh, remember this, not the blue state, not the red state, but rather the United States of America. I mean, yep. it, it would have been, I mean, he blew the doors off. It would have been, you know, it would have been the band singing the way at Woodstock. I mean, it doesn't get any better. It was that moment. I mean, it just captured the party's imagination. Um, I mean, I, I remember, I mean, I didn't watch it live, but I remember seeing excerpts thinking to myself, rut row, um, they may have found their guy because Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. And they had, you know, they found their phenom. They found their, I mean, it's not about black and white. I mean, I, I would imagine with some it is, but I know it's not about that with me. Because I, I mean, I love Thomas Sowell and Clarence Thomas and and some of these others. So it's not about you know um, the black guy doesn't have you know any business being that prominent in American politics. I, I like the fact that Clarence Thomas is as prominent as he is, and Thomas Sowell is as prominent as he is. Condoleezza Rice, not so much, because I think she's more of a a bushy war hawk. But it's not about it's about the dangerous intellectual progressivism that he made. Uh, marketable and and brandable, and it became 
part of the mainstream. So, so a lot of concern that we're having in America today is this kind of a debate we're having ourselves. What happened? I mean, Bill Ackman is basically saying, what happened to my alma mater? I mean, what, what happened to Harvard? I mean, I've got two degrees from Harvard. I've given enormous amounts of money to Harvard. What in the world happened on the way to the grocery store to my <laughs> beloved alma mater that does have an enormous ability to dictate how the government runs? We've done a good bit of this. Um, the majority of administrative agencies in American government are run by whom? Graduates from Francis Marion, Coastal Carolina, Clemson, University of South Carolina? No. It's about 11 or 12 prestigious elite universities. And, you know, Ackman basically said, and one thing I saw Bill Ackman said, he said the reason that parents send that kid to Harvard and that kid goes on to work for the government or CNN is they don't want that kid anywhere near the business. <laughs> That's kind of interesting. Uh, I read some of that over the way, and I'll get to this in just a bit because I want to kind of break news with you because a lot of people have asked me, because um, I, I refer to the Obama acolytes. And this Obama team, that this Obama, uh, I don't know, movement that has the, uh, I mean, it does have the intellectual underpinning, but there's no doubt about it. I mean, it is a, a force du jour in American politics. I've said and said, stand by my comment, the two most prominent politicians in America today don't hold office. One leaves fingerprints, one doesn't. That's kind of a good way hmm. to say it. I mean, there, there's no doubt when Trump walks in the room uh, and, and Trump has a kind of a say in the debate. You know he has a say in the debate because he's kind of a, um, I mean, he's a political wrecking ball. He's a blunt instrument. There is no tact. There is no, uh, you know, overreaching strategy. Obama's intent is to shape things but never leave his fingerprints. I mean, Obama would never put his name on the side of an airplane. I mean, he, he, he promoted climate change as if it was some extreme political ideology, excuse me, mainstream ideology, but he bought an oceanfront house in the Hamptons. I mean, if Trump did it, he would tell the world, you know, I made enough money to buy me a house in the Hamptons. And, I, you know, Obama's like, yeah, okay. Um, and he never left Washington. I mean, the guy didn't move to Texas. He didn't move to, you know, go, go to California. But he didn't go back to Wyoming. I mean, he stayed right there in, in Washington, one of the nicer suburbs in Washington. Um, but there is going to be an equal and opposite force. And this is where it gets unbelievably interesting. I mean, if Trump were to win, we're going to have the most consequential four years in modern American politics since the Lincoln administration, so. more consequential than the New Deal. Really? If Trump wins. Is that what they're afraid of? I mean, you're, I mean Obama's not going away. I mean, he's not going to take no for an answer. I mean, he's going to keep this new left, I mean, this, this radical progressivism, liberalism, I mean, it, that, it, that is so permeated the Democrats. But, but here's what's happening in America today. You ready? There's a group called, um, let me get this straight, American Moment. Re remember the guy that kind of works by, we're talking about Obama doesn't leave fingerprints. Guess who else doesn't leave a lot of fingerprints? Peter Thiel. And I've talked to Haley about Thiel. What's Thiel up to? I mean, there's no way you turn it off like that. You just don't. Uh, you don't lose the zest and zeal to try and transform things. And I think if there is an intellectual in this America First movement that is or could be an equal and opposite force, it's probably Teal. Obama's worth sixty or seventy million dollars. Teal's worth fifty or sixty billion. So I mean, he's got the money if he chooses to fund an equal and opposite uh, resistance. 
And I think he's doing that. There's a group in in in, in Washington today. Uh, had somebody tell me over the uh, middle of last week, hey, check into this for me. And it's called American Moment. It's a um, it's a training operation. It's like boot camp. They're finding younger people who graduate from non-elite universities, even non-college graduates, who buy into this populist revolt agenda. And they're they're sending them to these seminars. And what they're trying to do, Reb, because remember when we argued, when Trump got elected, the worst thing he did was keep all those staffers and all those employees and all those people that had been in Washington forever. Mm-hmm. If Trump gets elected in 2024, He's going to get rid of about half the staffers in the White House, maybe three-quarters of the staffers, but he's got to have somebody who knows what to do. Well, Peter Thiel, from what I'm gathering, you ready? Peter Thiel is one of the critical funders of American Moment. Josh, I may send you an article, and you put on our Facebook page. Somebody else out there may be interested. It's a long read. It's in Politico, but it kind of walks through the stages and steps of being ready for Trump winning. And Trump looking around saying, hey, I, I want to I drive this America first agenda home, but nobody else wants to. I mean, n- nobody else is a part of this. These, these people and these staffers, these interns, these, these employees, I mean, they, they've been here forever. And they're, they're, you know, they're not going to help me execute my plan. Well, American moment are trying to train an, an, an entire, I mean, it's 2,000 staffers that they're trying to have ready for the moment Trump gets elected. And they're true believers. I mean, they believe in this populist revolt agenda. So out with the old end, and that's when it gets crazy. And that's what I'm hoping for. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Josh, I want to ask you this. And I'll, you know, I'll put you on the spot because you, you, know, you want your own show and you got to be able to give your opinion. You're not nervous about giving your opinion. You showed that on Friday. Certainly. Yeah. Uh, you enjoy giving your opinion. So Joe is basically arguing that Rev and I are buying into the loyalty to Palestine, excuse me, the loyalty to Israel with some sense of uh, a blind loyalty. It's not a, an earned loyalty. It's a little bit of, um, uh, there's a little bit of a, a preconception there. Um, you know, I'll bless those that bless you, curse those that curse. It's biblical. It's Judeo-Christian ethic. It's easy for Rev and I to do. We've been conditioned to go down that road. Mm-hmm. And if we'd have a Palestinian on, we'd hear the other side of the story, and we'd be more neutral, more balanced in our reservations. Uh, we Maybe uh, Joe didn't say this, but, but I think Joe's implying that you'd probably feel the same way about Israel that you do Russia, Ukraine. I mean, if you're a non-interventionist, you're a non-interventionist. And if you believe that Putin is slaughtering Ukrainians, um, then you got to believe that some of those same sort sorts of atrocities have happened. That 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 the the, the Jews are not blameless. Well, that's, I've always said the Jews are not blameless, but they have targeted innocent Palestinians. I looked during the break, and I mean, I would argue that today's political media. Let me ask you, Rev and Josh, would you agree that today's political media? is less loyal to Israel than they've ever been. I mean, I'm not, I'm yes. not saying they're anti-Semitic. I mean, I'm not right. saying. They I mean, seem that, to be, and it surprised that, me that That's painted were. with a broad brush. Yeah. So if I say today's American political media is anti-Semitic, I mean, I think that's unfair. I mean, I yeah, think there's no. some people in journalism still trying to get it right, that they're going in 
evaluating what they report on with some degree of fairness. So, so saying that the entire Western journalistic industry is anti-Semitic would be fun to say, and it would be provocative as all get out, but I don't think it's facts. I mean, I, I think you've got to kind of kind of weigh that in contrast with what the truth is. Now, I do believe this. I, I do believe that the American political media is, ha- is as anti-Israel as I can ever remember. Uh, we, we've argued about the difference in anti-Israel, anti-Jewish, or anti-Semitic. I, I've admitted I don't know, but it feels different. Josh, I think, has agreed. It does kind of feel different. I mean, there's something, when, when you say anti-Semitic, it's a hatred of Jews. Anti-Israel could be, I just don't like the way them damn Americans, you know, have always had their back. I don't like the fact that America sends them all that weaponry and, and all that money. That's kind of an anti-Israel sentiment there. Wanted or not, I don't know. you got to say grace over that. But Joe's arguing, I, I think what Joe is saying is take the Palestinians at their word when they say the Jews and the Israelis have gone into Gaza and killed innocent Palestinians. I can't find any of that. I mean, I'm looking. I mean, I I went to, I mean, if there is an anti-Israel bias in the media and Jews were guilty of going into Gaza and killing innocent Palestinians for giggles and kicks, I got to believe the media would be reporting that. Now, now has a a Jew ever killed an innocent Palestinian? I'm sure. But at the request of its government, I, I just can't find any reporting of that. Your opinion of that, Josh? Yeah, I get what you're saying. Um... But, but it's not what I'm saying. I mean, it, it's what I'm saying validated by lack of news coverage. I mean, there, there's just not any stories out there that I can find. Not a six minutes, that's a break. And I started the second we went on break. And I, you know, six minutes, I've done this a long time. I'm pretty good at, you know, um, perusing the internet, trying to find interesting nuggets. And I couldn't find a story. Right. And my, my thing is, it's an ongoing war. And typically in in these types of things, all the news is propaganda. And and that's the thing. Like, so you're saying that American media is typically more uh, anti-Israel, not anti-Semitic, but anti-Israel nowadays than it was before. To that, me, they are. I mean, my— Sure. And that's what I'm saying. To, that might, be, that might his, be true. In its historical context, when there's been some sort of conflict, and you're right, it's perpetual. It never ends. I mean, you and I can get away from it because we don't live in Israel. We don't live in Gaza. We don't live in the West Bank. We don't live in Iran. We don't live in Turkey. We're not consumed or inundated with that sort of perpetual conflict. I mean, we, we can we can let it rest for a day or two or three or a year or two or three. Um, I think it was uh, Jake Sullivan who said, you know, the Middle East is quiet right now. And, and I mean, if, I, if I'm in politics, the one thing I never say is the Middle East is quiet right now. Because historically what happens I mean, it's never quite for long, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, can't we agree to that? So my point, Josh, is historically when there's been one of these more intense periods between Israel and its surrounding countries, there's not been that anti-Israel sentiment that I suspect now. And I think you would agree with me. The majority of coverage in mainstream media has been questioning whether there are two good sides here. You know, whether whether... And I think Israel's made it clear there are going to be innocent Palestinians killed. We're going to do everything we can to make sure we minimize the loss of innocent life. Right. And this is this is the kind of uh, rhetoric that I think is good to avoid. But is it but is it rhetoric? A little bit, because uh, what I 
What's rhetorical we, 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 about that? I can't. I, I don't I mean, really have a hyper. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. Sure. sure but, I but, don't mind. But when someone calls in, and, and I, I love Joe to call, but when Joe says that, you know, the, 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 I think if you got a Palestinian on, they would, they would tell you how many times Jews have gone into Gaza and killed innocent Palestinians. And I can't take a Palestinian at its word. Can I? I mean, if I had the opportunity to find, you know, Palestinian exhibit A, just the man on the street and, and, you know, ref says, Hey, there's this Palestinian dude in the, in the lobby. He wants to come in and talk about how many times his family has been attacked needlessly and senselessly and, and family members have been killed at the hands of Jews just for being a Palestinian. Has that happened? I'm sure it has. I mean, I don't deny that. I'm sure that's, that's happened. People have been killed because they're white or black or, or green or yellow or, I mean, that, you know, somebody shot a Clemson fan because they beat South Carolina in football one year. I mean, we've always had these, these, these anecdotal outliers, right? But, I mean, to suggest that that's the norm, I, I, just, I just can't buy that. I mean, there, there's no evidence out there that I can find that suggests to me that's in any way, shape, or form normal for Jews in Israel to go out and seek innocent Palestinians and kill them in the name of what? In the name of killing Palestinians, I mean the Jews. Excuse me. The 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 that the, there are certain Palestinians that have joined terrorist organizations and make no bones about it. It is their mission in life to destroy Israel. It is their mission in life to kill Jews. Now, but they make no bones about it. Are there are there any Jews in Israel whose mission in life is to kill Palestinians? I mean, there are Palestinians whose mission in life is to kill Jews, whose mission in life is to make sure. Israel ceases to exist, and the sooner the better. Would you agree with that? I would. Okay. But but here's here's my point of contention is that it now we're kind of getting into individualism where it's like are there are there Israeli Jews in Israel who hate uh, Palestinians because they're Palestinians? Yeah, pro- uh, probably. I'm sure. I'm, I'm, probably. I'm, I'm sure there are. And but then you say, well, the difference is is that Hamas or the you know. Uh, Palestinians in Gaza, they voted for Hamas, and and Israel is not, their mission is not to destroy all Palestinians. Their mission is to defend Israel, but they got to do that by fighting Hamas because they're being attacked, blah, blah, blah. The the point I'm getting at is, is that it's superficial in the sense that Israel may not be targeting Palestinians, but they are, but they are. But they're, they're, they're Palestinians who join Hamas, right? But but that's the thing. So you brought up how Hamas wants to kill Israel because they're Jews. That's what they've said. But I think uh, that's not what they said. They put their money where their mouth is. I I agree. Okay. But but the thing Saying is, that's kind of the thing, point. I mean, it's like it's like taking a reservation and holding a reservation. They right. take and inhale the reservation. But the point I they making, said they want to kill Jews, and they've acted upon that impulse. Right. So you guys were talking about how. Uh, is uh, sorry, Hamas and the Palestinians or whatever they want to destroy Israel and death to America. That's a problem for America because they're saying death to America. But then I brought up why is that? Is it because we're infidels? Because China and Russia are infidels, but they're not calling for death to Russia and China. I think it's because we are on the side of Israel. And why? So why do they hate Israel? Is it because they just hate the Jewish people so much? They probably do, but. 
why do they hate the Jewish people? Is it because they're infidels? Because they seem to hate Jews more than they hate Christians, both of which are infidels. I think it's because it's the Jewish people that occupied their perceived land. And then, you know, I, I, you can get into who it re- rightfully belongs to, but the point is they believe it's theirs. Okay. And, and that goes and back you to, explaining the history of it isn't going to change their minds. But but the point I made last week, Stu, on this, hypothetically, when when the United Nations decides to grant Israel as the Jewish state, and Truman in 48 recognizes, first world leader to recognize Israel as the Jewish state, what if the United Nations had agreed to make Israel, I mean, that would have been the 51st state because Hawaii and Alaska were not states, then, but but what if it had been a U.S. territory? Would 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 Gaza and the West Bank exist? Would Hamas govern Gaza, and would they be as adamant about destroying Christians and Jews in Israel as they are the Jewish homeland? You see where I'm headed. Mm-hmm. What degree of hatred? If on a if on a scale of one to ten, the Hamas's degree of hatred to Jews in the Jewish state is ten. What would that degree of hatred be if Israel was not the Jewish state, but rather a U.S. territory occupied by Jews and Christians? I think they would probably uh, hate the American occupation more than the Jews. It's like, so you look at, you look in their Quran and it says, kill the Jews, kill the Christians. And it's like, well, that it, there it is. It says it. That's why they hate them. But they're, they're, they hate the Jews, I believe because of what the Jews did. It's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy in the minds of the Well, you the took my Muslims. land from me. You took my territory right. from me. Right. That's, that's why. And then it's like, well, the Quran says so, and, and look what they did. They, they valid, like Jews validated that way of thinking. Do you think the Jews are occupiers in Israel? I, I don't know. Uh, it's, I, See, I don't. Right. And I think in the beginning, then, then we're getting in into the biblical, beginning, Israel belonged to the Jews. It was under right. Jewish rule, Jewish sovereignty. I mean, in the beginning. I don't know how you get much for, but in the beginning. And mm-hmm. I'm talking about the God of Abraham and King David at 1,000 B.C. Uh, well, and But that, once again, that, that, will, that debate will never cease to exist. Of course. You'll never convince the Jews that they're occupiers. You'll never convince the Palestinians they aren't. Right. Let, let's go to the phone. Daphne and Dylan, good morning. You're on. Good morning. There's one thing, Josh. And all of you got to understand that those terrorists that are Islamic will never be happy until all of us are dead. That is their ultimate goal. Now, when you're talking about Obama, he was a terrorist sympathizer. The 1,500 pages that he had with Obamacare were prepared by one of his Marxist friends before he ever walked in the White House. His mentor, Bill Ayers, was a domestic terrorist who blew up uh, police stations and whatnot and stomped them the flag in the ashes of 9-11. Obama went around the world apologizing for America. Obama also did the DACA thing which let people all the way up to the age of 34, who he said were brought here by their parents, uh, all the rights that we have. 
okay, when the uprising began in Iran, where the young people wanted to be free, and they were being killed in the street, Obama said nothing. He funneled money to Iran. He funneled money to Palestine. And the people in Palestine and Hamas built war tunnels instead of making their uh, their, their constituents uh, a prosperous people. They built tunnels to wage war. Also, with the Benghazi thing, those those particular things, when he had the military to stand down and had the CIA director fired because the CIA director said it was a terrorist attack, he then put John Brennan in. So those are some of the things. And he gave birth to ISA, which are uh, uh, McCain, Marco Rubio, and Lindsey Graham helped him do. They met on the Turkey border, and they armed who they call the rebels who turned out to be ISA. We have been funding the Taliban since we left Afghanistan when Joe pulled out. Nobody's mentioning that. The money that's going to the Taliban to promote terrorism could be going to Israel. We are still funding Hamas, Iran, all the terrorist nations. Those are the ones that we are funding. Thank you. Thank you, Daphne. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in just a few. 843-661-0937. Our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Mike in Darlington. Hey, Mike, you're on the air. Uh, I can't deny that uh, people have been trying to kill kill off the Jews since uh, who flung the first chunk. But uh, they this thing with uh, uh, the Ayatollahs and Mahdi's and uh, sultans and viziers and all of this, that's been going on since uh, forever, too. With the, uh, I mean, all you have to do is read uh, English colonial history and their wars in the Sudan, their wars in the Punjab, and what's now Pakistan, and they and uh, even Afghanistan. There, uh, this is this is an ongoing problem. I don't think it's directly related to the Jews, but I think the Jews play a critical part in history, and there's no denying they're one of the most industrious groups of people in the world. I mean, I think there's more engineers and scientists per capita in Israel than any other country in the world. Uh, but um, so uh, there's but there's no easy uh, solution to this uh, problem in the Middle East. And you're going to have to do like Alexander the Great. Somebody's going to have to pull out a sword and cut the Gordian knot. And I don't know who has the strength or the skill or the wherewithal to do that. I do know, and I feel quite confident, it is not Obama and it's not Trump. But somebody's going to come along and do it. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. You know, there's kind of a, um, I mean, I've seen a lot of tweets that say this. If Israel's enemies laid down their weapons tomorrow, there'd be no more war. If Israel laid down its weapons tomorrow, there'd be no Israel. But that... Who believes that? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, fundamentally, do you believe that? I mean, obviously, there's going to be anecdotal Jews and anecdotal Palestinians, 
Um, I think the Palestinians and Jew can live to some degree in, in peace, to some degree. I mean, we don't live our lives in peace. I mean, l- look at how much conflict we have in our lives. How many killings uh, are in Chicago over the weekend? I mean, we're g- real good at talking. About it. I know it's motivated by something other than, uh, you know, um, religious jihad. But but we don't, I mean, we're not immune to violence. We're not immune to division. We're not immune to, to hatred. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't have any idea what percentage, and I think Josh and I would agree here, and Josh and I have some daylight between us on this, but I think Josh and I would agree. One of the, one of the magic answers, I mean, if I had, if I could know the answer to this question, I think I could understand better where to stand. How many Muslims are, are concerned about the Jewish loss of life? How many Muslims were taken aback when they heard Jewish children had been beheaded? I mean, I, I'm not a, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, is it nearly every Muslim or is it hardly any Muslims? I mean, we know Islamic jihadists don't have any concern about that. We know that terrorists don't have any concern with that. that they perpetrate the acts of violence. I mean, they cut the Jewish babies' heads off. So we know that's not, uh, you know, alarming to them. In fact, I think it's gratifying, and they believe it's a, kind of a symbol of martyrdom. I mean, they, there's rewards in heaven. Um, what, what sort of religion could be interpreted that there are rewards for cutting the heads off babies? Let's go to the phone. Sam in Cross Hill. Hey, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, fellas. Uh, I just want to say, uh, Rev, go back and listen to old Josh's uh, few minutes there. He handled that like a boss. <laughs> and uh, I think you guys ought to think about giving him a little segment there if we have to listen to Jeff for 10, 15 minutes. Uh, give, us a, give us a Josh segment where he can speak whatever's on his mind. Uh, but think about that. And also, also, it's a shame that we didn't have Ken you on the radio whenever you were sitting there waiting on that train. I would have loved to have heard the nice. <laughs> no, yeah. It would have had to be satellite radio. I can assure you of that. We've been that using our delay. Don't. That would have been, been excellent radio right there. Um, you know, I don't know much about the, 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 the detailed history of Israel, but it seems to be over the last uh, uh, several years when there's been problems that seem to happen on the West Bank with the Israeli settlements. And, um, uh, I don't know enough to really speak to that, but that seems to be where a lot of controversy with the Palestinians, uh, in my mind anyway, has been. And finally, um, I, I agree with you 100% on Obama, and I'm not so sure that there's not a situation room in his house there in Washington, D.C., in an underground tunnel between the White House and his house and all the major media networks, and they come in there periodically to the situation room, and Obama gives them their marching orders. So anyway, great show this morning. Uh, hope you guys have a good afternoon. Thank you. Appreciate that. And, um, you know, it's not just Obama. I mean, there, there, there are a lot of tentacles here. The Obama acolytes, the Obama mindset, the Obama way of things, the, the transformation of America. I mean, it's not just, there's no way. As talented as he is, Obama can't transform America by himself. I mean, he's leader of the band. I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. I mean, he's um he's McCartney and Lennon. I mean, he's he's um he's Glenn Fry and Don Henley. I mean, there's no doubt he's leader of the band. But but they they have built a uh, an organization, and it's you know it's the Obama's the first new left president we've ever elected. I mean, he's a radical liberal. That there is no. I mean, I know he ran as a centrist, and I know some of you believe he's not radically liberal, but he is. I mean, he's a radical liberal. I'm convinced he's anti-Semitic. 
I'm convinced he's opposed to the Judeo-Christian ethic that has kind of transformed the Western world. And, and he sees this, I don't know, this uh, Bill Ayers way of, I mean, the Marxist, socialist, communist kind of manifesto way of doing things as, as, as something worthy of implementing. And, you know, I, I, I'm convinced of that. And we didn't do any of the, um, the work to better understand who he was before we got there. So we're kind of after the fact. And there's a couple of books out there. Um, David Garrow, David Samuel, uh, credible journalists have written things about him. Um, I mean, one basically says not only is he anti-Semitic, he's deeply racist. And these guys aren't, they're, they're not gotcha kind of politics. I mean, uh, authors or, or, or journalists, they're not the kind of guy that Fox News would have on. Hey, um, you know, would you like to go on all these morning radio shows and hawk your book and promote your book and tell everyone to go to Amazon? But these are serious men who took a kind of a deep dive into the, the lifetimes and presidency of, uh, of Barack Obama. Now, I've always said my concern is the America First movement that, that I guess is the alternative to the new left. I mean, if, if Obama represents the new left and Trump represents the new right, where are the Trump acolytes? Where is the intellectual underpinning? What were the office holders embedded in public service? Where are the, the staffers and the administrative agency heads? Where are they going to come from? And that's why we talked a little bit this morning about American moment. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. We began the show, well, I mean, after we congratulated Josh for a job well done, and I mean that sincerely. Is that the first time, Josh, you've ever had the airwaves to yourself? No. Okay. You've had that happen before. I had a show when I was in college. Okay. Um, but it was only an hour uh, and on Friday nights at 9 p.m., so once a week. Not, not quite as extensive as four hours a day, five days a week. So I got to give you credit where credit's due. Well, I mean, I don't, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm excited that you did so well. You really did. I mean, you, um, you expressed yourself very clearly and you did the one thing that I think is so important in this business. Rev, Rev he basically said, you hadn't heard him, but he basically mm-hmm. said the majority of experience he has doing this has been with professionals and you and I aren't professionals. <laughs> is that, is uh, that right? Was that the moral so of the let, story? Let me back up a half step. You ready? I don't think he can deny this. He said Ken's not a professional. <laughs> is that fair? I mean, is, is that fair to say? Is that accurate? No, that that's not true because what I said was is that you're not a radio uh, personality in a traditional sense where you've been striving to get to where you are your entire life. Therefore, once you got the microphone, you're not scrounging to keep it. You, you're willing to let other people take the microphone sure so i can get some time off um <laughs> sure <laughs> no but the thing he i mean the, the, the two things that stood out to me because i wonder i mean i do think about this i mean i'm i'm 34 years older than josh i remember being 26 and somebody 60 that i crossed paths with and did they have an impact on me or not and, and I think at the moment in time, you really don't think about it. But later in life, you go, yeah, I remember that guy. And he, you know, maybe he taught me something I wasn't aware of. Maybe he made an impression on me that I was not uh, aware of. The one thing I've tried to insist to Josh, and I think we live it. We don't just say it. We live it, is be who you are. Be authentic. Be real. I mean, if you, if you say things, you, you say things because you believe things. You say things because you 
trust in these values that you hold near and dear out of your heart. And I think your message, your, your, your monologue Friday sounded exactly like you believed it. I mean, you, you, Josh didn't say anything controversial. I mean, he didn't say, you know, um, the election was stolen or, you know, um, Clemson cheats. And, you know, I mean, he didn't say any of those things that we believed. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> he, he basically just kind of, um, but he, he walked through how he ended up here. And then when he, when he, when he's, you know, about ending up here, then he said, you know, and, and I remember talking to Dave about screening calls and Rev said, we don't screen calls. What do you mean? We don't screen calls. Everybody screens calls. Not here. We don't. I mean, if I'm having a bad day in, in typical radio fashion, and I think this is what Josh is alluding to. If I were a, a guy that prepared to do this, and, and I'm having a bad day, and I don't feel good, and I stayed out too late or argue with my wife or my kid won't do what he's supposed to do, I may stick my head in there and say, Josh, if Williams or Jeff call, tell them we're not here. You know, just tell them we're having phone trouble because um, that's the easy out. But but I, I don't think we've ever – I know we've not we, – we've never done that. And I think that, that, that's been beneficial to Josh to, to see it doesn't have to always be – kind of sterile it doesn't have to always be generic uh you you need to embrace and welcome and invite people who see the world fundamentally different and then argue with them and then you know (laughs) i've always said this the reason that i'm not concerned when williams calls or when jeff calls, no matter how many valid points they make i get the last word (laughs) that's true i mean i get the last word Host privilege it's unfair to jeff it's unfair to williams it's unfair to anybody else who calls in and antagonizes the host with things they believe in. I mean, they fundamentally, I, I trust Jeff believes in what he believes in. I think Williams believes in, in, in what he believes in. But but I always, I don't, it doesn't alarm me because I'm always thinking to myself, well, I mean, you know, we'll take a break and be right back. Mm-hmm. And when we get back, you know who will be missing? <laughs> <laughs> the resident antagonist, right. whoever uh, that may be. 843-661-0937 is our number but, but I want to go back to these polls because I think this is very interesting. And we, we kind of began the show with talking about Josh's bit. And, um, and I texted him. I said, awesome, 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 because it was very believable and very sincere and very genuine. And that will play great dividends as Josh's uh, career progresses. And then we touched on, on football a bit. Congratulations to Clemson. Uh, congratulations to South Carolina. Win is a win. Well, I mean, I'm going to say this, Rev. And, and I text yesterday a friend, I've never gone to Williams-Brice and left with a half win or one and a half wins. That's a program-defining win. You know what? It equaled one. That's a season-salvaging win. Right. That's one. It's an upset win. That's a one. It's a dominating win. It's a night win. It's a day win. You know what they've all done? They've counted exactly the same. They're one game. Uh, Clemson beats Notre Dame. That's a big win. The Gamecocks beat Jacksonville State. You know how many wins went in each column? I mean, Clemson did get one and a half, yep. and the Gamecocks get three quarter. That's true. They both got one. And I think you've got to be careful to put too much into, into those single games. I've said all year that Clemson has been snake bit. I mean, they're better than they've shown. They're not a 4-4 football team. I don't think they're elite. I mean, I don't think they're at the level Alabama or Georgia is or Ohio State or Michigan. But they're better than South Carolina, and they ain't played like it until Saturday. And they put together a solid game and, and held on. I mean, they got a big lead and then kind of held on um, toward the end. And I told you, Rev, 
Jacksonville State's better than Vanderbilt. Jacksonville State may be better than Mississippi State. Now, now you're right. South Carolina needed to play better, and they better clean some things up if they're going to have a chance in the last two games. I mean, they should beat Vanderbilt because I think Jacksonville State's better than Vanderbilt. But Kentucky and Clemson are, are going to be different stories, and they've got to clean some things up. They've got to get better. Beamer knows they got to get better. The staff knows they got to get better. The fans know uh, they've got to get better. I believe one thing they don't need to happen is Kentucky and Clemson be a noon kick. It's a different atmosphere. You were there. Right. I was there. I mean, it's a very different and, atmosphere. And I'll, and I'll say the crowd Saturday at Williams-Brice was bigger than I thought it was going to be. I mean, the student section did fill out right at the beginning of the game. The upper decks, were they weren't totally full, but respectable as far as I'm concerned. But the energy was very low. It was like everybody was either tired or well, hungover. Let, let me give you my theory on the stadiums being fuller than they would have been. In these low-demand games, I mean, I, I think the university did two things, and it makes me aggravated. I mean, I don't run the university, but I speak my piece. Um, DJ Swearinger and Ace Sanders had something to say about honoring those teams during a non-Power 5 game at a noon kick. Well, I mean, that's a low-demand game. That means there's some loyalty fans have to Swearinger and Alshon and Marcus and, and Spurrier in particular. And anytime HBC's in the house, it's a big day in Columbia. So for him to be there, I think the university said, uh, that might be a chance to sell a few more tickets. But here's the theory I have on why more people are at the games, even when they're low-demand games, because tickets cost so much. I mean, if four tickets cost you 100 bucks, you need to throw them in the trash, you're out of 100 If four tickets cost you 500 bucks, you're out of 500 You know what you tend to do? You tend to load up and go. <laughs> mm, I mean, you're not your end. Of I mean, course. Noon kick, non-Power 5 school. I think I'd rather do this. But I've got $500 in these tickets. Parking, seat tax, Gamecock Club member, IPTA membership. Nah, I'm not throwing that 500 in the trash. Uh, it, it bothers me to throw 100, but it doesn't upset me that bad. But if I got to throw $500 in the trash, then I'll load up and convince my family to smile and, and bear it. And I just think that's why you're seeing games now that historically have seen a big decline in turnout, but are rather, um, they're not sellouts but they're having a larger-than-expected crowd. Yeah. Now, the students couldn't wait to get to five points, right? Yeah, about halftime student section. Pretty much cleared out by at least half. Y you know what my daughter tells me the problem is? It's an off-campus stadium, and Uber can't get in there. So how do the students – I mean, I know they got these trails or whatever. What am I trying – trams or whatever. Yeah, Here's what needs to happen. The city of Columbia should build a monorail system between about six or eight hubs. The university is – what, 45,000 undergrad, 40, undergraduates, over 50,000 with graduate students? There should be some transportation system, very modern transportation system. But if you had monorails, kind of like MARTA in Atlanta, yeah, I'm sure. not saying you run all through Columbia, but about five or six of these very strategic points, Williams-Brice being one because it is a off-campus stadium. 843-661-0937. I'll say this, though. It was pretty cool seeing HBC in the house. Yeah. For what it's worth. That his um his bit has been on Twitter because Beamer basically Shane's got to get better at that he's got to get better at the post game you don't criticize fans no matter what the, the, the you, you you take the blame you fall on the sword you blame yourself or the players and somebody was talking about you know Spurrier Spurrier <laughs> anyway we we played that before won't play it again take a break back in a few.
843-661-0937. I got here this morning thinking the Beatles might have written a new song. <laughs> not, not today. Yeah. <laughs> I played two minutes and 12 seconds of Promised Land. That's plenty. Rev played eight minutes of Dead Men singing. It, it was four minutes and like four and a half minutes he wept, on Friday. Josh, he wept I didn't before weep. I left. I didn't weep. I did, get the, <laughs> I did get a lump in my throat. He wept before I left, Josh. Hey, hey, he... He likes me, and like he said during the break, you know, uh, what'd you say, Dave? I'll let you say it about announcing a song. Well, it was it was the only time in my radio career of 30-something years that I was able to introduce a new Beatles song on the radio. But it's not really a new song. It's a lot of AI. It's a lot of artificial intelligence. What does the word artificial mean? Well, now, wait. No, 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 stop that, there. Well, what does the word artificial mean? <laughs> Listen, you, you, hey. What, what, what is a artificial sweetener? But they used it to remove right. background noise. Thank you, not, Josh. Not create a but, new but, song. But let's was it or not an, an experiment in artificial intelligence? It was it was John's voice. It was Paul playing instrument and singing. Don't make me Ringo. pull George Stephanopoulos on oh, you. Oh, come on. Answer the what question. Are you Answer what are you trying to question. say here? <laughs> they used AI technology to remove to separate John Lennon's voice from the piano from that original cassette recording so they could actually mix it right. And the, the A and AI stands for? Artificial. Which means? Not real. Okay. Yes. Okay. That just so it's not real. But they didn't let AI create recreate John's voice. Okay. It was actually John's voice. It just helped make, make it mixable, I guess. Fair enough. He wept, Josh. I did not. He wept. <laughs> I, I have watched, you know, those reaction videos we've talked about before on YouTube where yeah. people react to songs. So I, I, did, I did watch a guy last night who did weep. Yeah, I mean, he played it, and he. But there, there's a video that came out later on Friday. That's an actual <clears throat> music video, and again, they used AI to to put the not real. It not right. They they mixed you know video of John Lennon. I mean, it, it's pretty crazy the way they had it. It is crazy. It's scary crazy. Yep. Um, and then the way they end it again. If you're a Beatles fan, 
uh, it'll it'll put a lump in your throat. And it did put a lump in my throat. I'll admit that. I like the Beatles, but I'm not a Beatles fan. It's a little bit like what is anti-Israel and anti-Semitism or anti-Semitic. Uh, I, I don't know exactly what the difference is, but there is a difference. I'm a Beatles fan. Excuse me, I like the Beatles, but I'm probably not a Beatles fan. You would be a Beatles fan. Yeah. Yeah. And I've become one over the years. Sure. I, I didn't I wasn't a big Beatles would fan. Would you agree up. with me that the intrigue of the Beatles is what could have been? That's part what of it. What might have been. Had they stayed together. First had, it, first it's what they accomplished. Sure. So they were young guys and they were, you know, just a, a, a short period of time they made that much of how an long, impact. How long, Rev? I mean, how long were they together? Well, was it about eight years? Yeah, seven something? or eight years. Yeah. It was a it was a second. Um it was about how many one year for every rehab Keith Richards is going to. I mean, it's just seven or eight would probably be no, that would probably be under anyway. I think Richards has been to more than that. But um but I mean but you would agree with this. A lot of the intrigue with the Beatles, there's no doubt they were unbelievably talented. I mean they, there's I Can mean, you imagine our lives without their songs sure, or melodies? I mean, no question about it. Their their hits are, as MasterCard likes to say, timeless. But but I think the it's a little bit like, remember me telling you one day about Springsteen, the best thing to happen to Bruce's career was Obama? I mm-hmm. mean, it's the worst thing to happen to mine in your life, <laughs> but the best thing to happen to Bruce was... That's another thing he, to be mad at Obama But I mean, he, he and Obama became friends, <laughs> yeah. and his music got introduced to a different audience of, of, of people, and they were like, I like this guy's politics, so I'm going to give his music a chance. Hmm, not bad, okay. Uh, kind of old school rock and roll. But I think the, the most interesting part of the Beatles is... The fact that they only played together seven or eight years, they went off and had successful single careers. I mean, by and large, they all did. Maybe not Ringo, but I mean, Ringo held his own. Um, I heard a, I heard a DJ or read something, saw something on YouTube. This guy argued that George Harrison's single career was better than McCartney or Lennon's single career. Hmm. Could you make that argument? I think McCartney with Wings had a lot of hits. Um, but you would but, be biased. Yeah, George, I mean, he was in the Traveling Wilburys. Bingo, that was, that's kind of what the guy yeah. said. Tom Petty, Jeff Beck, uh, Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan. Uh, Roy Orbison. Mm-hmm. Pretty stout company there uh, when you think about it. But um, And he had some solo hits, yeah, too. Yeah, but, but, but I still believe, I mean, the, the Beatles were legendary, period. But breaking up and never getting back together and then having John Lennon so tragically murdered ended the likelihood. Well, there's no way to get the Beatles back together if Lennon's dead, right? I mean, would you agree yeah. to that? Okay. I mean, there's just no way to get the Beatles back together with John Lennon being dead. And it's almost like what could have been, what might have been, what we wish had been. And that's that's timeless. I mean, that never, ever, ever goes out of style. Nor should it. I mean, they earned it. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Hello, David. You're on. Yeah, good morning there, Royal Rev and Ken and Josh Limbaugh. Yeah, I've got Josh Limbaugh there. Uh, one day he'll you'll be screening calls for him. How about that? I bet I don't. Uh, huh? I bet I'm going to <laughs> I'm going to the house before that happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hey, you'll be down there in Paulie's Island. We'll be trying to question all these Northerners why they're moving down here, man. Yeah. Uh, if if I if you I get to a place I got the screen called, I'll be so drunk I don't need to be on the radio. <laughs> There, there you go, my man. Uh, hey, you were talking about Obama. I think about Obama down here in South Carolina back in the day. And you guys remember this, fired up, ready to go. And I think there was one, yes, we can. And uh, he he had another one. He called it the Corridor of Shame. And the sad part about it, this I-Corridor 
or whatever he called it, I call it our home. Uh, so I, he he's another one of these global carpetbaggers is what I call it. But uh, old Stephanopoulos, I mean, he must be listening to Williams. Uh, he asked that question. I think he did it six times. He said, was the election stolen? Was the election stolen? I'm asking for the fifth time. And then he asked it again. So we know he's an operative. And I go to if you you brought up a good point. If you get if your uh, polls are sagging, you go to the sag strategy: stolen election, abortion, guns. That's sag. And then they're gonna bring in race, religion, LGBTQ, and climate change. That's how they got to run on. So we know that. But can uh, uh and Dave? I guess he was at the stadium. Steve Spurrier. Man, I love that guy, and I go back to those. They were talking about the glory days of our team, uh, and I I think about uh, the old Lane Kiffin Alshon quote. Man, you go play at South Carolina, you're gonna be pumping gas. And these guys proved him wrong, man. And I go back to to 2011 February 14th. That's when we signed Clowney, and that was our days. And um, that was just neat because we lost three – I'm sorry, we lost six times in three years, and doggone, we've lost six times this year. Uh, so I know y'all got a trivia question hopefully later on. Here's a good trivia question for you, Ken. The six teams that the Gamecocks lost to in those three years, take a, take a stab at that one real quick. Oh, they lost to Tennessee in a tough one that year at home. Um they lost to LSU. Yes. They they lost to they had to lose to Clemson one time in those six years. Um, no, they, no, they didn't. They they didn't lose to Clemson in that little three year period. Oh, three, three year, year period, three year period. Tennessee. Yeah, yeah, I'm talking about the, we're talking about 2011 to 2013. I think they lost to Georgia once. You're you're getting there. I know uh, they uh, lost to uh, Tennessee. Auburn in 20 in 2010. Lost right? in, Auburn in the oh, SEC man, championship man, game. Uh, Dave Baker pulled that one out. They lost to LSU once in Baton Rouge, I think. They did? Yeah. Um, <sighs> did they lose to, I'm trying to think of, two, two a year for three years. They didn't lose to Clemson. Did they lose to Kentucky one of those years? No, sir. Okay, they didn't lose to Kentucky one of those years. They lost to Kentucky in 2010. Right after they beat Alabama, they lost to Kentucky. Well, they lost to LSU. They lost to Auburn. They lost to – did they lose to Florida once? Yeah, they lost when Muschamp was there. They sure lost did. 44 to 11. Sure that did. was Muschamp's best game when he was at Florida. Yep. I don't know who else, David. Who else was it? They lost to Arkansas in 2011 when Petrino was there. Okay. I, I guess that's when he got caught riding with some girl on a motorcycle or something. Yeah, that's, that that's before he got all broke up with a female volleyball player. So, whatever that is. But I, I tell you what, man, I'm going to give you all credit. You're a true fan for knowing that. Cause, but that was that was our glory days. You talk about Springsteen, this, that, and I could I could really go back into these games in detail, some of them. Uh, but you know, I, I I'll I'll leave you with this, man. These people are global carpetbaggers. That's a sad thing. But the I corridor, that's our home. 
Y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. Um, and and I'm I'm advocating a theory. I mean, I, I'm I'm trying to say that I believe. I mean, I, I know what the New York Times Siena poll says. I mean, that's not me theorizing. I mean, I can read the poll verbatim. I mean, you can question. Somebody sent me a text a second ago. Said Trump behind a generic Democrat in five of those states. Well, there's no such thing as a generic Democrat. I mean, a, a generic Republican, generic Democrat. I mean, that's like, are you a Democrat? Everybody who has a tendency to vote Democrat, a vote for a generic Democrat, but not Joe Biden. Generic Republican is always going to outpoll Donald Trump or George W. Bush or whomever uh, the nominee may be, because generic means I'm not bringing all the baggage with me. I'm not bringing all the personality traits and characteristics. But the one thing that I'm sure of, and I'm not speculating on this, is the DNC sent the memo to the media at the end of last week that we're not talking about the economy anymore. We're not talking about national security anymore. We're not talking about uh, border security anymore. We're not talking about foreign policy anymore. Because look at the polling. I mean, when you look at the unfavorable number, I mean, I've never seen it this high. The wrong track number, I mean, if you're buying the wrong, you're 54 points underwater on the wrong track. I mean, that's a, it's time to go home. I mean, if you look at the right track, wrong, ABC News, wrong track, Biden is minus 54 points with a complicit media, with everybody doing everything to tell, convince them, don't believe your eyes, the guy's competent. I mean, he's prepared, he's working hard, he's on the job. <laughs> and, and nobody's buying that. 54 points underwater on the wrong track number. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. Uh, let's go through this polling. You ready? Because this matters. I'm I mean, ready. I'm, and, I want to hear it. Well, I mean, there's a couple of things we need to pay attention to today and tomorrow. We'll touch on this. Um, tomorrow, there are two races that I think are benchmarks or, or, or harbingers of what is to come. One is the Kentucky governor's race. You've got a, a I mean, it's a, it's a Republican state, but you've got a popular Democrat. I mean, Bashir is, I mean, he's maintained uh, a high degree of popularity in Kentucky. Uh, people like him for whatever reason, uh, but he's a Democrat and he's in a Republican state. I think Trump got 62% of the vote in, in Kentucky. Uh, and then you've got Virginia Senate 31. I heard Yunkin say yesterday about flipping the Senate, and he mentioned Senate District 31. And I know a little bit about the Senate in, in Virginia. I know 31 is Loudoun County, and I just can't convince myself. I mean, you can talk underwater on wrong track. You can talk Biden dragging the party down. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, Trump did that. Bush did that. Obama did that. Every president almost at some point in time in their term drags the party down because uh, you got real hard decisions to make and you don't get them all right. And sometimes people take that out on the party instead of you being on uh, top of the ballot. That's, you know, that's not, I mean, I don't know that I've ever seen it that bad. I don't know that I've ever seen the wrong track at, at minus 54. That's a, that's a troubling number. And if you're a Democrat uh, and Biden goes missing, uh, anyway, uh, I'll just leave it there. If you can't find Joe Biden, he may not have just wandered off somewhere into the abyss. Well, you're starting to hear these voices say louder, it's time for him to step down for the good of the country. You know, they say, oh, he's been a terrific president. He's been great, but it's time to step aside. Well, I mean, it, it's pretty obvious that they know they have a problem with him. 
Because we heard over and over and over again, there's no way Trump can win. I mean, there's no way Trump can win. Well, this is not a Fox News or Rasmussen poll. I mean, this is a New York Times-Siena poll, and that kind of sounded, sounded the alarms. Uh, Trump in Georgia plus six. Trump in Pennsylvania plus four. Is that enough to overcome what may or may not happen in the suburbs of Philadelphia? I don't know. I mean, Cahaley says four is the magic number, right, Rev? I mean, Robert yeah. says that if, if a Republican is leading in Pennsylvania by four percentage points, it's a dead heat. I mean, that's what happens in the streets of Philadelphia, as Bruce famously said. Uh, Michigan, plus five for Trump. Uh, Wisconsin, minus two, plus, uh, plus two for Biden. Nevada, plus 11 for Trump. Uh, Arizona, plus five for Trump. So of the six swing states, only Wisconsin is, is going Biden's way as we speak. And then you go to uh, Trump and Harris, and, and Harris runs ahead of Biden. I mean, she's running not significantly, but uh, Trump plus six in Georgia against Harris. He's plus three. Uh, the same in Pennsylvania, plus four. Um, now, here's where it gets a little bit odd. Trump and Biden is Trump plus five. Harris is plus two. So she wins Michigan if she's the nominee. Uh, in Wisconsin, it kind of plays the other way. Biden's plus two. Trump, Harris, Trump's plus two in Wisconsin. I have no idea what that's about. None whatsoever. Michigan and Wisconsin, why they kind of invert one another when it's Harris instead of instead of Biden. Uh, she does a little better in Nevada. Trump's up over Biden by 11. He's only eight ahead of Harris. And then Arizona, it's plus five on both tickets. But this is the, I mean, to me, the, 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 the number that intrigues me the most is the CBS general election number. I mean, I've said it before, and, and I'm a loud and proud America firster. Uh, I'm more of an America firster than I am a Trumpster, but but obviously today I would be a Trumpster. I've always said that Donald Trump legitimate polling will never have Trump at north of 48. I mean, I've always thought 47 and a half is his ceiling because he's so polarizing. He's so self-destructing. He's so self-sabotaging. And I, and I believe the reason, you can call me crazy, I believe the reason Trump has excelled in the polls is because we're not hearing a lot from Trump because the world has been focused on Israel and Hamas. And Trump gets kind of a benefit of the doubt. We're not talking about Trump as much. Why? Well, there, there, there's a conflict. I mean, a significant conflict in the world. And a lot of people are concerned about, you know, if we were to intervene and if uh, Israel and America were to ally and attack Israel, excuse me, attack Iran. I mean, you got China and Russia on the back. I mean, this thing could really elevate or escalate into a third world war. And it's all of a sudden people are going like, hey, Trump, get over here for a minute. I mean, you're a big deal and we'll get to you in a minute. But right now, let's focus on this issue that's much larger than any political candidate. And that is peace of the Middle East and, you know, who's wrong and who's right and what to do about who's wrong and, and who's right and what America's role and involvement in, in that's going to be. And, you know, if we decide to cut the head off the snake and attack Israel, or excuse me, attack Iran, I keep saying Israel, then what provokes China to maybe do something? And it really escalates fast uh, from there. But I think Trump has benefited from the media not paying as close attention to what he says and what he does because we know he's self-destructive. We know he self-sabotages at times. Um, but he's not the reason that Biden is minus 54 in wrong track. I mean, that has nothing to do with Trump. I mean, that, that's all about Biden and his failures. And, and whomever coined the phrase, 
Is it whom or whoever? Whoever or whomever coined the phrase and said Bidenomics is what we're running on needs to be j- just, just fired. I mean, no question about it. Worse than fired, need to be fired and j- just ostracized, never to work in politics again because nobody I know believes or has any faith in the economy. I ate lunch Friday with a good Friday, Thursday with a good friend of mine who's in business and he deals in a lot of business oriented endeavors. And he asked me, he said, um, you know, a week or so ago when you were talking about EVs, I wanted to call in because I've argued we're at peak EV now. I mean, I've argued that what we're trying to do and what we promised are going to be just sadly mistaken. I mean, we're, we're making terrible, terrible, horrific generational mistakes when it comes to electric vehicles and energy powered and the decarbonization. Let's, let's paint with a broader brush there. It's unfair to just say EVs. I'm talking about decarbonizing the economy. Uh, that includes a lot of different things, solar, wind. We, we just, we've gotten so far over our skis on this one till we're going to end up with, with a, not egg on our face. If we have egg on our face, we won't know it because we'll all be in the dark. How about that? <laughs> I mean, there won't be any, uh, any lights on anywhere in America. Um, but, but I don't know why they chose to try and force this economic debate. And it's going to get worse. I mean, the first and second quarter are going to be bad. M- most reasonable people believe that. Everybody I know associated or affiliated in business believes the first and second quarter are going to be a struggle. Some believe a bigger struggle than others. Um, some say soft landing. Some say hard landing. I think it depends on where you are and what sector of the economy uh, you're a part of. I, I saw something the other day. Um, the guy we call CP. Uh, remember the, um, I mean, he's an entrepreneur yeah. and innovator and out in Silicon Valley. And, um, I can't, I won't even try to pronounce his, his name. Top of Taya, yeah. I forget yeah. His name. Shamish, uh, anyway, um, he was talking about San Francisco real estate and New York real estate and, um, and some of the other places around America that he believe are in for a horrible, 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 um, time over the next year as we repurpose commercial property and debt renews at a much higher Interest rate, I mean, he just believes that there's going to be enormous struggles uh, around the bend uh, and could lead to a lot of um, a lot of net negative migration from some of these states into redder and redder and redder states. And that's probably the, the macro the Republicans have in its favor. I mean, you know, we talk about demographic challenges and young people like Josh voting Democrat and African-Americans at a high percentage voting Democrats, and now the Republicans have a woman issue. I mean, that's the media narrative. The Democrats can't get young people to vote, they can't get minorities to vote, and they can't get women to vote. Well, somebody explain to me why Trump's leading in Georgia, leading in Pennsylvania, leading in, I mean, is everybody turned into a white man? Or are other people waking up and or waking up and saying, wow, this guy really sucks at his job? I mean, the other guy was narcissistic and bombastic and full of himself, but it really seemed... He had a more grasp on the job. He had a better grasp on the job and understand, you know, what needed to be done to kind of get the ball moving down, down the proverbial field. And this guy's just, I mean, Bill O'Reilly had something over the weekend. They had some sort of event and he and Jill start kind of walking back to the white house, except he's not walking back to the white house. He's walking off into the distance, into the woods. And, and O'Reilly, <laughs> O'Reilly's pretty funny because he's a New Yorker. And those New Yorkers have a quaint way or not so quaint way. He says, um, I mean, he's, you know, you know how Riley does. He's real animated. 
I mean, I am. I've talked with my hands all the time. But he said, um, well, he's walking off again. You know, he just got kind of in Jill's got to kind of grab me back. And Secret Service are like picking up pecans under the pecan tree <laughs> where they, nobody's ever been to the history of the White House to head him off and make sure he heads back this other this other direction. Now, I want to say this. Um, tomorrow will be an indicator. I mean, there's no doubt about it. The The Senate seat in Virginia, the gubernatorial race in in, uh, in Kentucky, but the media is going to talk about Ohio. And there's a, uh, there, there's a, a ballot question where the Ohioans can decide whether they want to make abortion a constitutional right or not. I mean, I think it's a, it's a ballot question. Uh, DeWine has tried to couch it one way. Fetterman and some of the others have tried to couch it another way. But, but rest assured um, that the DNC sent their memo to the mainstream media, and the mainstream media began talking about what? Abortion and the 2020 presidential election. Because they can't talk about anything else, Rev. I mean, how many times has somebody called in to this show saying that Joe Biden's doing a good job as president? I mean, I know there are Democrats out there that listen. How many people? I mean, I understand you don't like Trump. I get it. You know, and I I guess you could argue he's better than Trump. I mean, you've convinced yourself. But let's go through the data points and let's talk about where Biden has succeeded and where he's failed. I mean, that's all we heard about Trump. The data points, the data points, the data points. Uh, the percentage of this, the percentage of that. Let, let's go through that with the Biden administration. He's just a lousy president. But he's never been a very, very competent man. Now not only is he the same incompetent, I'll say it, buffoon, um, and, 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 and the scandal hadn't even hit yet. I mean, Comer kind of made his way on television at the end of last week. They began talking about I mean, they say there's going to be 20 subpoenas. There's about 250 or 60 bank records. I mean, we already saw kind of a, um, you know, a wire transfer written into a check, dispersed into three other accounts. Six checks were written out of, out of that account. Um, it seems to me that the only business Hunter Biden has is opening checking accounts. <laughs> I mean, for a man that, I mean, really and truly, I mean, if you say, what is Hunter Biden's legitimate business? I don't know. But he's got a lot of bank accounts. I mean, he's got more bank accounts than Warren Buffett. And he doesn't have a legitimate business. I mean, his business is opening bank accounts. <laughs> Maybe that's why you need so many bank accounts. I, I guess. I mean, but, but how many? He's trying to hide money. Well, I mean, from what I'm gathering, there are. Now, now the thing that concerns me, Comer has thrown out the number 20 to $30 million. And we're talking about 40000 and 200000 And I think now he says the subpoenas are coming. And, I mean, I think Weiss is going to be subpoenaed tomorrow, if I'm not mistaken, by Judiciary and, um, and uh, uh, Jim Jordan. But, but I, I, want to see, I don't want to see $40,000 checks. I want to see some, some, some multi-million dollar transactions. Uh, and Comer says they're coming, but, but I was thinking about it. So, so Hunter Biden, kind of interesting last week. I don't know if you saw this or not, but Hunter Biden had a lot to say about picking on an addict. You know, I I was an addict, and now people are going after my dad because I was an addict, uh, seeking sympathy. Well, I mean, you're – okay, let's for argument's sake that he deserves the sympathy an addict deserves. How many addicts do you know that have 100 bank accounts? How many addicts do you know that funnel money through all these varying bank accounts and nobody still understands exactly what it is he did? See, see, Biden is underwater 
as bad as he is, and the media has yet to cover that story. I mean, what happens if in the next two or three weeks, news begins to break that, and, and, I, and I'll predict this, it's about time. Because you got late filing, you got filing fees, you got state deadlines, you got a lot of things that have to happen to, to kind of pick Harris or Gavin Newsom or whomever they're, they're going to choose to take his place, but they can't wait but so long. So here's my prediction. The, the scandalous side of the Bidens, and I'm talking about the money laundering, the pay-for-play, the selling access or influence, I mean, that, that's been held off about as long as it, as it can be held off, but, but it will be... It will be far more mainstream now than it would have been because the data clearly shows that Biden's got himself so far underwater and he can't beat Trump. And the only thing Joe Biden has ever had going for him in liberal la-la land is they thought he could beat Donald Trump. And once they're convinced that he's, or once they're concerned that he can't beat Trump, I mean, he's useless. And, And Obama and his acolytes will find you know, the next whomever and whatever puppet that they want to use to allow him to pull the strings on the periphery. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Rest pointing at the TV. Uh, breaking news. Iran has said that the U.S. will be hard hit if no Gaza ceasefire. Um, there's no way hmm. I would agree to a ceasefire. No way in this world that I would agree to give terrorists a chance to kind of get their feces consolidated, get their feet back under them, uh, and go back to, you know, in the business of killing uh, innocent people. I understand, guys, I'm not oblivious nor naive to the realities of what the Palestinians, some of the innocent Palestinians are, are dealing with, but there's no good answer there. Josh, would you agree with that? There's no good answer? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's human carnage. I mean, I'll accept that. It's, 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 it's unfortunate. It's the loss of Innocent human life. I mean, I think we all at some level care about that, but I just, you got to make a calculus. You got to make a call. And I think it's a bad call to agree to a ceasefire that allows, I mean, it would allow some of the Palestinians to kind of make their way out of harm's way or would it? I mean, would Hamas let innocent Palestinians through a humanitarian corridor? Uh, I'd imagine probably not. Yeah. Why would you do that? I mean, that's kind of the, um, I mean, that's why they're holding hostages, right? Right. I mean, it gives you negotiating power. So so why would you negotiate on allowing innocent Palestinians when you know that's what the Jews are most concerned by? You know that's what the Western world is most concerned with. I mean, the Western world doesn't want to be responsible for killing a lot of innocent people. Or I don't think they do. I mean, maybe I'm overestimating the Western world. You know, I've got a lot of concerns with the Western world. I don't think they've historically had an interest in slaughtering innocent people, I think Islamic jihadists have. I mean, that, that's just that they're in the business of terrorism. That's who they are. And, and, I, and I go back to my central question, and I have no idea the answer. But how many Muslims are, are distraught or upset or care about Jewish life? You haven't heard a lot of speaking out. Well, I mean, you don't hear any condemnation. You just don't. Uh, are they allowed to condemn? Are they not allowed to condemn? Are they afraid? Uh, is there some punishment that they have to deal with if indeed, uh, you know, and I'm not professing to, the, to know the answer to those questions because I don't. I absolutely don't. But I think when you talk about the issue, 
That's got to be one of the unknowns that we'd love to know an answer to. I think I could feel a lot more comfortable, in my opinion. I think Josh could feel. I think Rev could feel. I think the majority of you could feel very a lot more comfortable, in your opinion, if you knew how many Muslims cared about the innocent loss of life. But we don't know. Is it nearly uh, every Muslim outside of Hamas, Hezbollah, well, let's say Islamic jihadist. Is it, is it nearly every Muslim outside of Islamic jihadist who say, wow, that breaks my heart to know that happened in Israel, or wow, that breaks my heart to know that happened in New York City, or is it very few? I mean, that matters, doesn't it? I mean, that doesn't really answer. I mean, if you want to go out to the end of the limb, don't we have a debate about the compatibility of Islam and the Western world? I mean, if there is a Judeo-Christian ethic and it has dominated the body politic to some degree, because it has, I mean, there's no denying. Uh, I mean, Jeff and I had an agreement about the separation of state and religion, but there's no denying that the majority of people who hold office in America today ascribe to a Judeo-Christian worldview. I didn't say all, but, but the majority do. And, and you're telling me they check that at the door every time they make a political decision? I don't buy that for a second. Let's do some trivia. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. It's been a Celsius free morning, and I've had some issues. Life water has been my saving. <laughs> I sound like a NASCAR driver, don't I? Um, Celsius and life water and that Pepsi and <laughs> Pepsi. Those goes. Those, ah, those guys are really, really, really supportive of us. Very good uh, to us, True. and uh, and we appreciate. And I mean this sincerely. I got my life water. Don't have a Celsius, but I got my life water, and um, that is the um the whole body hydration via reverse osmosis, if you want to get real scientific and specific about it. But here's our trivia question brought to you by our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. Um, we're talking Beatles. I want to make Rev happy because he's all upset. He, he wept Friday uh, <laughs> listening to the Beatles' last didn't quite song weep. ever. Um, the correct answer to this question wins a six-pack of Pepsi products and a couple, a couple of Take Mondays to make Friday's T-shirts. What album has outsold every other Beatles album? The best-selling Beatles album ever is 843-661-0937 is our number. And, I mean, I, I got to confirm by second sight. Now, there's there may be another place out there in Google world that disagrees with me. And if you answer this wrong, that's your tough stuff. You should have Googled better. Let's go to the phone. Hi, you're on the air. You know the answer? The White Album. Nope. That's close. 843-661-0937. And once again, there's a debate, but but I had this confirmed by two other websites. Hi, you are on. What's your guess? The Beatles. Nope. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Hi, you're on. What's your guess? A yellow submarine. Nope. 843-661-0937. That was 1.25 million copies sold. That is in the top 10. All three of those were in the top 10. Hi, you're on. What's your guess? The White Album. Nope. 843-66. Hmm. Was that, would that been your guess? No. You know the answer. I have okay, my guess. Okay, I okay. won't say it, but I have my guess. Hi, you're on. What's your guess? Would it be the One Album? That's close, but no cigar. 
Hi, you're on. What's your guess? Sergeant Peppers. You're right. Sergeant Peppers, Lonely Hearts Club Band, 1967, 32 million copies sold. 32 million copies sold. Who is this and where are you calling from? This is Larry from Sumter. Okay, Larry, sit tight. We'll get all your information. Um, no shot Josh will have. Uh, he'll get your information. We'll get you a couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirt, six-pack of Pepsi product, courtesy of our good friends at Pepsi uh, Florence. Would well, that have been your guess, Rev? Uh, no, actually. I okay. was going to say Abbey Road. Yeah, Abbey Road is number two. 20 million um, copies sold. White Album, One, Rubber Soul, Revolver, Magical Mystery Tour, Let It Be, A Hard Day's Night, Help, Please, Please Me, Beatles for Sale, Yellow Submarine, and With the Beatles. But uh, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, 32 million copies and counting. Enjoy your day, wow. right? Yeah, that's yeah, a wrap. And enjoy your day. That's a wrap, Rev says. We'll be back tomorrow.